We could take an hour for any of these, but what do you want to start with in terms of these? I know it's Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. It's Barbie. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 47 of Plot Devices. It's time to turn on the lights and do everything the Muppet Show says, because there was a teaser for the Muppet Show, and we're not talking about it because there wasn't that much in it, but I'm very excited about it, along with all of the other things that we have on this slightly delayed episode. Sorry about that. We, we kind of all took vacations and mumbo-jumbo and things like that. But thank you for coming to listen to us. My name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today, alongside my always loyal co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you today? I am so happy to be here recording with you, Brandon, for yet another episode of the Plot Devices podcast. We have some trailers we're talking about today. We have some Marvel big news that we're going to be getting into. And I'm super excited for a new guest, not new, but a returning guest of the Plot Device crew here um, to join us on a review of one of this year's best action pieces. So my head is just in on the content that we're covering today. Um, outside of that, I'm reading a bunch of manga. I'm well, nobody's watching TV right now because The Last of Us just ended. It's sad that we're not getting Last of Us for so long. Like it, it just brought people together, you know. It really did. I'm going to be sad that my Pedro Pascal man is going to have to be masked for the remainder of my enjoyment of him. But it's okay. We're still keeping up with the Mandalorian. I think we've got a couple episodes left in that show. The flow of what that show's been hasn't been like crazy exciting. But hey, I watch it with my family. It's a good time every Wednesday. There's a new episode tonight. Ooh. Uh, no, I, I watched it this morning, actually. Are they not released? Okay, this separate separate conversation. This is another news topic, but over to you, Brandon. Yeah, so uh, go watch Mandalorian. It's fun. I enjoy it. Um, but yes, it's going to be a jam-packed episode today. And I, Noah and I have not talked a ton about these topics, but I feel like we're going to get pretty heated in good ways and bad in this. It's going to be very exciting. We've got uh, again, as he mentioned, big Marvel news that we're going to talk about in just a minute. Quick Hits, of course, is coming back. Lots of reviews. Uh, Sky Merida will be joining us from No Capes Required to talk about John Wick. We've got Tetris and Dungeons and Dragons and Oh My and other things. Uh, ben Affleck in pink shorts. What the heck? It's going to be a long show. However, we are going to be starting off with the trailer roundup. It has officially returned because this is what happens when we take two weeks plus to do a show. Lots of big trailers drop and... As we're getting into summer movie season, which seems weird because I like yesterday it was February, but time has no meaning, I guess. Uh, lots of big trailers dropped, and we're going to talk about some of them. Uh, Across the Spider-Verse, of course, the sequel to 2018's Into the Spider-Verse dropped its second major trailer. New looks at the Hall of Spider-Men, if you want to call it that. Uh, better look at Oscar Isaac as Spider-Man 2099. Lots of better looks at the emotional themes. I am probably going to cry at this movie. It is coming in theaters June 2nd. Uh, shortly after that, we're getting Pixar's Elemental, which released its first full trailer after a nice teaser. That stars Mamudu Ati from Jurassic World Dominion, alongside Leia Lewis from uh, the half of it. Earth, wind, fire, and air elements having to live beside one another. We'll talk about that. That comes out June 16th. Also uh, coming into limited release that week and then going wide the following, Wes Anderson is back again. Asteroid City starring basically everyone. Uh, it's a bit of an Oppenheimer situation, but to narrow it down, you've got Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks working with Wes Anderson for the first time, uh, Margot Robbie foreshadowing, um, all about like a group of kids studying at this asteroid crater when aliens happen. I don't know. As Again, it's coming out June 23rd. But speaking of Margot Robbie, the thing that you want us to talk about, we, we get it. The first full trailer for Barbie, it's here. The teaser was not enough. And now we get two glorious minutes of it. Um, Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, Kutigatwa, Issa Rae, uh, Simu Liu, the cast goes on and on, directed by Greta Gerwig. That will be in theaters July 21st. 
Blue Beetle. Uh, Shola Meredwenya is Jaime Reyes, the uh, young version of the Blue Beetle. There's a lot of comic history that we might get into. Uh, yeah, it's not being pushed. It's coming out August 18th. It looks super fun and exciting, kind of a Green Lantern, Spider-Man, Iron Man hybrid type deal. Uh, Scarab finds a young kid and gives him blade powers that cut through buses a la Shang-Chi, and it looks fun and exciting. Uh, Noah, we have so much to talk about through all this. Again, we could take an hour for any of these, but what do you want to start with in terms of these? I know it's Barbie. It's Barbie! We have a full trailer, straight up Margot Robbie as Barbie, Issa Rae as Barbie, uh, even like Dua Lipa I've seen from the character posters as Barbie, Kate McKinnon as Barbie, all of these Barbies, yes, with the same name, and the same goes for their counterpart, all of the Kens just looking gorgeous and just shooting these envious looks at one another, maybe not envy, but just scorn between Simulu and Ryan Gosling was experienced in the trailer. I really cannot wait for this. I was excited at the teaser. I was excited at the freaking announcement. And now we have this whole trailer. Where do we begin? Uh, for one, I'm excited to see such a developed world that Barbie is already involved in. Um, we see her as like this popular, we don't even know where her place is, right? But we see her as like this popular, um, character amidst all of these other positions where we know from the character posters that Issa Rae will be the president. Um, you know, all of these different roles that exist in their world. And it just looks like fun. Like the color palette is amazing. It's bold. It's flashy. And it's honestly, it's going to be the movie of the summer for me. And I'm probably going to make my way back and back again to experience just all of the life that's coming through. What do you, what are your impressions of Barbie so that we can stop there and then we'll hop into the next? Well, when we talked about the first teaser, we were both pretty high on just the idea and concept that Greta Gerwig was putting forward. This looks much more indicative of the tone and maybe the plot, some of the plot beats that we're going to be getting, uh, the chemistry between Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. And it looks ridiculous. It looks absolutely ridiculous. And I've seen a lot of Twitter and a lot of just social media at large has really been getting behind this. The jokes, I think, work. Um, the whole, like, mono e mono stuff between Simu Liu and Ryan Gosling, I want to see more of. I love the roller skate joke. Um, like there's just fun stuff in there. And like you say, visually, it's going to be an absolute treat. I've heard rumors it's going to be an IMAX. I don't think I will be swarming to see it in IMAX, but I feel like that would be an experience. All we've seen so far, just plot relevant details is Barbie and Ken, all of them in their own world, but it looks like there's some kind of shift that takes our, our primary, I'm going to assume primary Barbie and Ken in Gosling and Robbie into the real world. Would you agree? Basically, yeah. But I also got the, I got different vibes from those old set photos to the trailer where it seems like there's a road to get to the real world. So like, is the Barbie world like an adjacent place, like, like New Mexico or something where you can just drive to it? Or is it like a different dimension or that stuff is still ambiguous. I'm sure Will Ferrell will kill it as the CEO of Mattel that we see briefly in the trailer. Um, but yeah, that kind of, that's still the mystery to me of how they're addressing those tropes. But like the feel of it is absolutely there. The next one that I have just been bubbling over with excitement for, and that is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I'm scared, Brandon. I think I latched onto one piece of dialogue that was mentioned in the trailer, and that was, you can either save one person or you can save all of maybe humanity or whatever he said. And it scares me so much because then we have flash images of perhaps Miles losing Gwen or perhaps Miles losing his dad. And so we're reminded of the fact that this isn't Peter Parker. He doesn't have the same faded loss of Uncle Ben or in the MCU, Aunt May. Now we're shifting focus back to Miles. And I'm like, 
I don't know enough of Miles's story to even prepare myself for what that loss might look like. But high points for me are Oscar Isaac's uh, voice voice performance for his character, uh, Spider-Man. I think it's 2099. Then we also have <laughs> the hilarious moment of all, like, it's just meme actualized. We have a, a meme that is completely realized in the new Across the Spider-Verse film. You know the one I'm talking about. Spider-Man all pointing to each other only in sets of three. It is such a perfect moment that they included in the trailer. I know it's going to be hilarious when we actually see it, but I'm just so ready for this art style to be just blown up in front of my face again. And from what I remember online, Across the Spider-Verse, is going to act as a love story between Gwen and Miles. So I'm really engaged and like tuned in to how they're going to shape up both their characters to really see the best in one another and what their, what their path towards romance is going to look like. Uh, future me, get your bleep button ready. This looks so fucking good. Just the visual aspect alone. I remember the first trailer alone looked fantastic. And I actually, when I went to, uh, what was it? When I went to go see Shazam and IMAX, they were showing it for the first time and I got to see it on the IMAX display. And I was like, this is just the trailer. How is the, and then this trailer comes out and I go, I need to see this in IMAX right now. Um, the line shading, the sense of colors, the sense of like effects in the whole mystery, you know, uh, web of life type stuff that they keep showing. Um, and that's before we get to the character beats. Like, like you said, Oscar Isaac sounds fantastic. I have no doubt he's going to be delivering his A game in this. I'm curious what that dynamic is going to be in the face of, you know, a multiversal Spider-Man story that doesn't center on Peter because they even kind of make the joke, I think maybe in the first film or in this first trailer where, you know, it's usually Peter. They kind of bring that up with the idea of like, we all had an Uncle Ben or most of us did. And I'm wondering how they're going to reconcile that of just like, we're not the norm on that and we're not seen as the norm on that. But also the very blatant thing of, Oscar Isaac's character being much more blatant and much more assertive to violence and, you know, it needs to be done. I really want to see what that is. Again, I will probably cry at some moment in this uh, in this movie. It seems absolutely beautiful. And yeah, I can't wait. I just need to see it now. So the next three that I'm going to kind of go right through, Brandon, you might spend some more time on them. Yeah, but sure. for myself, here I go. I'm going to say Elemental looks cute. Going to probably watch it with some family members next. Well, okay, but what's exactly new in Elemental? I don't know. Moving on. Asteroid City, I wish I knew more and had more regard and like maybe even like acclaim for Anderson's projects. I've never seen Grand Budapest Hotel, Don't Throw Rocks yes. at Me. And I've never seen the other um he didn't do Isle of Dogs, right? That's No, that was him. Okay, I believe then that's the only one I've seen from him. But watching the trailer, I didn't even have to know it was Anderson's project because he has that visual director's um recognition he has recognition just based off of his style alone so that should incline any one of his fans i think to be excited about this next project but for me having just <laughs> having just like kind of remembered that the f and i'm sorry if i'm misspeaking the french dispatch is also from him yes yes okay having just remembered that the french dispatch was a project within recent years has me going where's the time gone? Because I, I'm still telling myself, oh, you better make time for the French dispatch only to learn that now there's a new project I got to get ready for and probably miss and then remind myself to watch only for his next project to hop up. So for any Anderson fans out there, I'm sure you are one of them, Brandon. Uh, I would look forward to what you have to say about this. It looks so damn quirky and out there that makes me go, is this the nature of his projects? Like I've seen the dog movie. How does that translate to his his pictures with actual humans or, you know, real actors in them. 
I'm so curious to know what you'll think of his live action work and also what you think of Fantastic Mr. Fox if you liked Isle of Dogs. But no, Asteroid City looks really fun. It looks like that same kind of Wes Anderson quirk to it. I'm curious to see what Tom Hanks in a Wes Anderson movie can be like, because I think of him in such a different wheelhouse than someone who is so precise as Wes Anderson. I think I saw someone comment being like, Wes Anderson is the only director right now who can have a shtick and no one gets tired of it. And I kind of agree. Um, I'm curious what the story is going to be. Like, if it's the idea of aliens or like some plot to take over the town or convention, like it's probably going to be something quirky like that. And I'm probably going to eat it up because, you know, the cast looks amazing. Uh, yeah, it looks neat. It's a good first look. But again, I have some trepidation. Blue Beetle out the gate. Of course, I'm excited to see some new Mexican-American representation on screen with Blue Beetle being a character. Um, and with those identities, it inclines me to, you know, maybe check out some of the material, maybe figure out what if his, which one of his best stories are worth the purchase. Order that book over here and get my hands already dipped in the Blue Beetle fan train. That being said, whoa. I feel like I've already seen the movie. I watched the trailer and I go, ooh, this seems extremely, like, just not even predictable because you don't have to predict it. They've gone ahead and just let you know how the story is going to play out. You know, Big Bad wants the artifact that has enhanced our hero and heroes probably going to come to terms with the responsibility of their meta-humanness and now they're going to save the day. Just replace those characters with different faces and you've got blue beetle look watching the trailer sure i can get excited about you know this is a character who can really form anything at at their imagination like it's it's completely of their their own uh very much iron man very much um i got psylocke like when he cut through the bus oh yeah i was kind of reminded of dr strange but i'm reminded of psylocke too from i think it's apocalypse x-men yeah the trailer shot yes you know and my final note, it's kind of brutal, but this kind of feels like a straight, like, Nickelodeon movie. That's my early impression. I'm sorry. The funny thing is, I saw a couple of people comparing this to, do you remember Max Steel? God, no. What is that? Look up Max Steel. It was a very cheaply made superhero movie with Andy Garcia a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, this doesn't not look like it. Um, I will simply say I have been rewatching for whatever reason, I've been rewatching Batman, the brave and the bold, which is the show that introduced me to blue beetle as a character and seeing him go from that incarnation to this is such a clear through line that to me as a fan, it feels incredibly rewarding. Um, I haven't seen all of Cobra Kai, so I've only seen, uh, some of Sholo's work in that and a couple of other things from interviews. He seems like a really cool guy. I love that the mom is the gorilla fighter from Predator. Like, that's such a great callback. Um, Susan Sarandon's in this. George Lopez is in this. I'm just curious to see what they'll do with the Blue Beetle mythology, because I'll send you a video later that Atop the Fourth Wall did of, like, the whole history of Blue Beetle. There's a lot of weird stuff in regards to that, especially in terms of Jaime's backstory, that I'm curious if they'll touch on or not. But yeah, as far as just the pure movie goes, it looks like a ton of fun. This is a great, like, August big blockbuster thing. We share a birthday and close. Do you really? Yeah, Gemini King, June 9th, except I'm three years older. (laughs) And you'll never let him forget it. Let's move on to our next major topic for the day. A little less fun, a little more, you know, business side of things. We've been getting into those stories a little bit recently. For those of you uh, who have been keeping track of the MCU news recently, 
Initially in March, there was an article from The Hollywood Reporter saying that Victoria Alonso had exited from Marvel Studios. For those of you who are unaware of the hierarchy of that works, she's basically Kevin Feige's third or fourth in command at that point. She's been with the MCU uh, since essentially the start. In 2005, she started on Iron Man as the executive producer of visual effects. She's worked in some capacity since then and only recently was fired as a result. We didn't know why. And then a few days later, Variety and Hollywood Reporter both dropped pieces kind of trying to explain some of the insider details about this. Ultimately, it does not seem like it was either Bob Iger or Kevin Feige's decision. Likely, it had to do with Marvel's non-compete clause, which I'm, which we still don't know how extensive that is. But basically, it meant that Alonzo, who produced the recently Oscar-nominated documentary Argentina in 1985, couldn't keep her main position at Marvel. There was apparently some stuff with HR that was involved. That also adds on to the insider reports, which, again, take with a grain of salt. We've heard a lot in the last couple months slash a year of the infamous Marvel crunch time schedules on VFX projects. Uh, one Vulture report cited Alonzo as, quote, the key cause in a toxic work environment, end quote, so that should tell you. However, there have also been reports on the other side that cite Alonzo as a, quote, unquote, fall guy or fall woman in this case, uh, in a lot of reshuffling around 2022 and 2023 positions around the reactions to the MCU. That would be enough in itself. And yet it's not, because Disney also announced, as we covered last episode, it would be cutting around 7,000 jobs, which we thought meant, like, you know, park workers and, you know, people in media management, not like top media executive Ike Perlmutter. Uh, important to note here is that Perlmutter notably co-owned Marvel in the mid-90s. He's incredibly important to the history of the company, depending on who you ask. He's also one of the key figures in getting that sale to Disney in 2009 for, I believe it's three or four billion dollars that was sold uh, to Disney for Marvel Studios. However, uh, if you talk to a lot of fans, he is also notorious for cutting costs on productions and behind-the-scenes stuff and rejecting early pitches for stuff like Captain Marvel and Black Panther, because depending on who you ask, he is either adverse to or just doesn't like diverse storytelling. Yay. He did also talk to the Wall Street Journal uh, after this, calling the move, quote, a convenient excuse to get rid of a longtime executive who dared to challenge the company's way of doing things, end quote. And Deadline also made key to note that he and Iger aren't on the best of terms after the move. So who knows if Perlmutter has a future in this? Who knows if Iger has any intention of reshuffling into this? Noah, this is a lot in and of itself. Uh, what do you make of all this? The cynic in me is kind of like rubbing my hands together and going like, yes, let's watch it all fall because I haven't been as happy with Marvel's recent projects. And so to learn that somebody that is like, she's referred to as like Feige's second, right? Or like the second up there with Marvel. Yeah, she's essentially, it's, you know, Bob Iger, Kevin Feige, Louis D'Esposito, who I believe is still at the company, and then Victoria Alonso. And to learn of her firing, I just, my eyes widen and I go, oh my gosh. So it had me thinking there was a relationship between these mixed reviews and reactions and reception to all of Marvel's or the majority of Marvel's recent projects, which have been less than, and, and that's resulting in now shifts even at the head of this giant. And so it's just very surprising news. I was tuned into several YouTube videos just trying to follow what reasons can we give this story for Alonzo's firing. And so from what I took from a couple of those videos that I watched, uh, no one in particular am I just running with the information from, but they were equating it to, you know, Alonzo had very, like, I had a very structured vision for like what Marvel could achieve with all of its diversity and the identity representation. But did that translate to the best storytelling that made its way to the final project? I mean, if you ask these people, they say no. And they say that that is a reason as to why they applaud this shift. And it, it just has me, it has me raising my eyebrow thinking, you know, 
what can the future of Marvel look like with a shift like this? Does this mean it's going to look different at all? Did you see somebody mention how they quoted her saying that these directors don't direct the movies, Marvel directs the movies? Did you see that quote? I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think she mentioned a specific director. She just said there was a director who did something, but we directed them for it or something like that. Yes. And so moves like that just have me thinking, you know, if you're going to oversee something at the top, even above the directors, it removes the, uh, maybe the authenticity or just the, um, the sheer potential of a director to try and just go all out. Last time we saw that from, for myself was with Sam Raimi and his touch on Multiverse of Madness. Um, I hope that we get more projects that feel particular and aren't being controlled from the, you know, the big brother upstairs. So I can't speak to this move. I can only speak to how it makes me feel as a fan. And as a fan, I hope for change. Yeah, I think that's what Iger is going for. And again, to reiterate, it does not sound like, at least from a concrete news perspective, this was entirely Bob Iger's decision. It seems like it was a lot of fallout that resulted from, again, Victoria wanting to do other things, Disney's complete clause, which... To me, is a little worrying. That seems like it goes back to like the 40s and 50s when stars would get signed to MGM or United Artists and just couldn't go to other companies. I didn't think that was really a thing anymore. So that was kind of enlightening to me. Um, but in, not in a great way, just in the idea of, oh, so someone from Marvel can go do one other thing and then they get fired for this after 20 something years. That being said, I think you do very much have to take the VFX uh, criticism into account. She has been president of that branch for a while at Marvel Studios and while I don't take every you know Reddit rumor into account, when they start piling up, you can't really ignore that. And we've had exposés and how people bottom of the line are treated by Marvel higher ups. So I, while I'm not going to say that she absolutely deserved by any means, because there's also the idea of, you know, she was a 20 plus year veteran. She was queer, you know, Hispanic executive that we don't see in Marvel often. She was an incredible advocate uh, in contrast to Perlmutter for diversity at Marvel, which is why you know, we're getting Miss Marvels, why we're getting more Black Panther projects. And it should be noted, she is still attached to, I believe, Guardians 3 and Ironheart. So you're still going to see her name pop in credits eventually. It is a little shocking just to know that implication of it. But I'm with you in that I can hope this has changed because it does mention in that original article that they haven't filled that position yet. So I'm sure this is a result of, again, Iger reshuffling a lot of things. So again, we just kind of have to hope for the best. Perlmutter, I'm a little worried about because... Perlmutter has been there for so long, and his quarrels with Kevin Feige are well-documented. I encourage you to look them up. They are stories. But he's also been on the publishing side for a long time. And whatever you want to say about him, he is a very shrewd businessman. And for someone like the comic book industry, which is you know coming and going in waves right now, I have seen a lot of people on the comic side of Marvel fandom be a little bit worried about this and not get any... Uh, not get any sort of concrete answer as to, well, what changes at the publishing line, uh, I believe... The current president of Marvel is still in charge. So I'm much more worried about Ike leaving just because of his solid, his solidity in that part of Marvel versus Victoria. But if our hidden theme in 1985 and that success means anything, I'm sure she'll do very well for herself. And that'll do it for our main news topics for today. We're going to move on to the return of quick hits. It's the topic of the show where we take a topic each for around a minute to around 90 seconds because time has no meaning nowadays. Uh, that may not be room for a full discussion, but we want to get across to you guys anyways. Noah and I both have them. Noah is going to start on his, and uh, I'll toss it over to him. Hello, everybody, and welcome to my quick hit. 
Here I go in a three, two, one category of did you know an I Am Legend sequel is in the works. And according to IMDb, it is listed as in development. Here I'm sharing information that Will Smith and Michael B. Jordan are attached to that sequel. We don't exactly know the role for Jordan, but we do know Smith is back as Dr. Neville. Some of you are now gasping at this information because maybe you've seen the movie. Maybe you are aware of this character's fate. So actually, this new movie is picking up off the alternate ending that was presented in the first film, where where Dr. Neville survives and reunites the head monster or vampire with his mate before he escapes the city with his quest to develop a cure still incomplete. So a lot of this news is basically sharing that we have a sequel for this hit horror thriller movie that came out in like 2000s. I'm really excited about this. I cannot wait to see more of the material adapted from the original book. So additional did you know is that I Am Legend is based on a book of the same name from the 50s by author Richard Matheson. And this sequel is going to derive more of its material from that written work. This is all learned from one of the producers of the upcoming film, Akiva Goldsman. He is as I say, a producer for the upcoming sequel. And here's a quote that I pulled from his conversation with Deadline. What Matheson was talking about was that man's time on the planet as the dominant species had come to an end. That's a really interesting thing we're going to get to explore. There will be a little more fidelity to the original text. If you're an I Am Legend fan, horror thriller fan in general, I think we're all excited to learn about this sequel in the works. Time. Brandon, I think the mass appeal for I Am Legend as a story was only heightened with the alternate ending being shared, whether you watched it on YouTube for the first time or you actually had the Blu-ray or you rented the disc so that you could access its bonus features. You couldn't do that if you just went to the theater to go check this film out. So once you learned of the alternate fate for Smith's character, Dr. Neville, you're excited. You're excited to learn that maybe this badass hero who drew out so much emotion for you as a viewer, maybe his story continued. And now to learn that it will... This is years in the making, or I'm sorry, it's going to be set decades ahead of, you know, the original character story. So we'll have to see what route that story takes. But this is great news and I wanted to share it. Yeah, I have no idea what to really feel about this. I liked I Am Legend after I grew out of my I'm terrified of the zombies phase of it, which I still am a little bit at certain times. Um, I love Will Smith and I'm mixed on Akiva Goldsman, but it is Francis Lawrence. So I'm curious to see if he'll come back and do this. Michael B. Jordan obviously is a big plus. So. Yeah, I hope it's cool, and I like the alternate ending. I'm like most people. I like the alternate ending better, so I hope that that lore gets expanded on a bit more. On to my quick hit in three, two. So for those of you who tuned in to our best of the year list last year, you might remember a little movie called Tar. It got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. I was gushing about Cape Blanchett about it. It's, it's a great movie. I think it's fantastic. It might also be the last movie from director Todd Field. Uh, he recently had a pretty in-depth interview with CinemaScope talking about how Tar got made and the process of seeing Tar get recognized by the public, saying, quote, There's a real challenge in making a film of any size. It's not for the faint of heart. I wish I was cut out for different stuff because I probably wouldn't make more films. It takes a great deal out of me to make a film. I don't know that I'll ever make another one. It's a very strange thing to do, and it doesn't come at any small cost to you and the people around you. He goes on to continue and talk about Tar's box office legacy and whether or not people actually saw it. Uh, It's a broken infrastructure to actually go and see cinema nowadays. I'm not just talking about end-of-the-year cinema. I'm talking world cinema. I'm talking being able to see things with a collective community, walking out and feeling different. If you want people to go to the cinema to have an immersive experience and sit down with other people, you would better give them the opportunity to do that properly. To which the interviewer finally just asked the question, are you done with directing um, or will you be directing another feature? He said, quote, it's highly unlikely. 
This does come after uh, Field also exited the Keanu, the Keanu Reeves starring series Devil in a White City, and after he announced that his tar-related short film, The Fundraiser, would not see any feature screenings after the Berlin International Film Festival, and I'm mad because I want to see it. Uh, if he does, Todd Field is a fantastically talented director. I admit I've only seen this and Little Children, but I really hope he does. He said he might continue on with this. I know I'm over time, but I hope that he doesn't get dissuaded too much because we need directors like him. And now we're going to hop into our new releases for this week. Four movies to talk about uh, this week. I have a solo review coming up. Sky Merida is going to be joining us for John Wick. But first and foremost, Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves is in theaters. Uh, it's directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who did Game Night. Very different change of pace for them. I'm going to lead you over to Noah Guzman to tell you what this new incarnation of Dungeons & Dragons is. And does it bore any similarity to that Jeremy Irons movie? Here we go! Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. I'm gonna keep the plot simple for you as best I can. So who is in this story? Edgin. Who is he? He's kind of like a for-hire mercenary. He'll be a soldier. He's mostly a bard as well, but he collects information and can sell it to another party. He's by no means like a morally great character, but a character who gets by with, with what he's able to and eventually has a family. But what does he want in this film? He actually wants to have that family back after being widowed early on in the uh, infant stages of his child Kira Edgen really is seeking that life again with his former partner he though he does have some aid in raising a young Kira from Holga Holga is Michelle Rodriguez's character more of like the barbarian and so the two of them went out on a quest, ended up being separated from Kira the daughter and now they're just trying to figure out a way to get back to her and we learn that she has actually been influenced by a character named Forge, who they formerly entrusted. Now he's got all this power going to his head. He's working with the wizard. It gets very shaky and sneaky up in the high castle of wherever they are. Edgen and Holga now have to be separated from the kingdom and ideate a plan to get into this kingdom, get his daughter back and gain her trust again. How is he going to do that? Well, he's going to have to enlist the help of a couple of friends. We need a sorcerer's help in Justice Smith's character, Simon. We need a druid's help. Enter Sophia Lillis as Doric. And we have the wonderful experience of just being enamored by the king, the paladin himself, Reggie Jean Page. Am I saying that correct? I've heard like five pronunciations of it. Okay, let's go Reese John Page as Zenk. Zenk is the Paladin character who has a, I would say, guest performance in where this movie goes. Uh, but that being said, uh, some other standout characters in here are going to be Sophina. Sophina is the head wizard that is working alongside Forge. Uh, she is played by Daisy Head. And if I didn't mention it before, uh, Hugh Grant plays Forge, the kind of like snaky uncle. We have Chloe Coleman as Kira, who plays uh, the daughter. And then, of course, we have our lead, one of few, uh, Chris Pine as that lead character, Edgen. So I wanted to, sorry, I want to quickly point out, do you recognize Chloe Coleman? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we just talked about her in 65 and I brought up her, her appearance in the, in the HBO series, Big Little Lies. Uh, she's busy. It, it seems like her schedule is busy and she is getting work. So shout out to her. Yeah, right. So I give you the who's. I gave you the majority of the what's. Uh, you don't know the when's. I don't know the when's, but in this Dungeons and Dragons world, uh, who's to say? Now, I am riding off a high from my fantasy binge of Vox Machina, which Brandon and I both adore. So to be in this fantasy space again, 
I'm just going to pitch to Brandon. Brandon, this seems to be like the plot device genre of like intersection interest. Like this is where you and I, I think just nerd out. And though I, I mean, though I've never played D and D, you can speak to your experiences too. I just am so engaged. I'm enveloped in this world. And I just want these monsters, these different species to be all around me, forming community, going on quests, you know, fighting dragons, getting gold, realizing what artifacts work for them and which don't. It's just so much fun. Uh, we're going to speak to the production details and more of like where the plot, you know, has its peaks and dips, but just entering this story, this really surprised me. Did it surprise you? Uh, it surprised me more is that you never played a D&D campaign? For real. And you know what? After doing bare minimum research, just like iceberg level research of what the game entails, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I was a pretty badass narrator in Werewolf. I would love to be Dungeon Master. If I could just witness it once, guarantee you I will just, I'll learn the ropes and I'll start my own. See, I have done at least two D&D campaigns in my life to different levels of success, but I have had an enjoyment just getting to be enamored in the world and the mechanics of it all. And as someone who watched at a very young age, the Jeremy Irons Dungeon Dragons movie, I was trepidatious about this, you know, oh, you're getting the guys from game night to do it, but like the cast is really cool. So what is this going to be? And yeah, in a similar way to Vox Machina, this is surprisingly really fun. And it's not Lord of the Rings. It's not anything like that where the world is so in-depth where every side character is given mythology and everything like that. It's very simple archetypes. Like, Edgin is a member of a group of hunters, but is also a bard. You know, Holga is a member of this tribe who we don't really see any of, but she has her own baggage to it. All the characters have mythology and backstory to them, but they're just enough to let the actors inhibit it and just for us and just enough for us to get attached to them. And in that way, it works the same way the Box Machina does without, I think, a lot of some of the crude humor of that show. But in some of the emotional aspects, I think are just as I think are just as effective on this. So, yeah, I'm with you. I was very surprised at how effective this movie was in transferring that energy of a frantic, chaotic D&D campaign into a linear 90 minute story. And I'm reviewing now just what the writer's credits are outside of this. I'm seeing for one of them, you know, Spider-Man Homecoming, Horrible Bosses, and like you mentioned, Game Night. And I just want to give them so much credit because this script is funny. It is hilarious. So many great one-liners come from our character Forge, uh, one of which he is uh, sipping tea and it's piping hot. And although he has several lines of complaints about how hot that tea is scorching, um, he looks over to his just blank face, completely just uh hell bent on chaos wizard, asks her to warm to cool it down. So she sticks her physical finger in there, only for him to look at the cup with disgust and go, oh, I didn't I didn't know you were gonna stick your finger in there, so I'm actually gonna hold on the tea for now. And just to have her expression remain just it never moves. And Hugh Grant as this type of snake weasel character God, he did so great here. And so a lot of credit goes to the writing. I, I love when they, when they pull a joke and I never think that this movie, you know, it wastes a moment. Like there are times in other movies where the comedy actually ruins some of the emotionality behind these scenes. Here, I didn't experience that. Honestly, between this and Paddington 2 and Operation Fortune, which we haven't talked about yet, if Hugh Grant just wants to be a character actor playing the scummiest of scumbags for the rest of a career, by all means. Please just let him have his comedic fun. When I, when I first saw him, I did go like, Oh, I wonder why like they, we have him when he was kind of introducing the castle and whatever. But then as the story went on, I, I, 
I became convinced. I was like, no, I, I need him here in this story. Like, this is his role. And then there's a line which you've seen in the trailer, which is just still as great in the movie. It's like, I don't want to see you die, so I'm just going to leave the room. There is a prison escape scene, and that is like the very first scene that we get where we have uh, the, the main characters, the best friends, the co-parents in Edgin and Holga. Holga is ferocious as a fighter, and we'll get to those action sequences. But the way in which the two of them ideate what this escape can look like you know the man with the plan is edgen and they both are just pleading their case to this council that exists at this you know um detention center or wherever and they're waiting so long for this person named jarnathan jarnathan where's jarnathan where is he and up until the moment that he walks in you may question why is he important like does he have ties to this character like what could he possibly have to be there for this character walks in has wings there's a shiny glass window right behind our characters and you know where it's headed it is it is a moment that just had me laughing within the first 10 minutes and i realized that okay this is the type of movie that i'm gonna get I want to build off of that real quickly because while I don't think the movie is this level of brilliant, I think the opening five or six minutes frankly are because I'm going to spoil just the first couple minutes where going off of what you said, you know, we open on the prison sequence and we see a prisoner and we think, ah, that's the villain. And then we see Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez and we think, oh, so it's, you know, at the end and we're going to see flashbacks and they get to the, the courthouse sequence. and We think it's all going to be told in this. And then the Jonathan stuff happens and you think, Oh, so it is linear. And then it keeps happening and it just keeps throwing new things at you. And while the rest of the movie isn't quite that fast and furious with it all, pun Michelle Rodriguez, um, I thought that initial couple minutes was really clever, at least on first viewing to be like, oh, wait, this is fun. I don't know where this is going. So as we move forward with the story and whether it's like the scheming of Forge to actually like try and absorb Edgin's daughter from him, or it's the... You know, the stuff to do with the enchantments that Sophina is trying to reenact for this kingdom in Neverwinter. I'm saying Neverwinter. I believe that's where this place place. It's where Hugh Grant rules over. I don't think the entire continent is called that. And I just want to speak to, you know, kind of that journey of where they go. You know, they learn that they do need to break a spell, so they need a sorcerer. And what's the one that they know? Well, he's the he's a semi-sorcerer, according to Holga. But according to Edgin, he's the one guy that they need um, who could who has the potential to become something great. And that's Simon. That's Justice Smith's character. Uh, I mentioned before, I think, when we were talking trailers, that I was hesitant to really hop on board with, like, this next portrayal that he was going to give us. Uh, I wasn't really a fan of... Jurassic World Dominion and how he was used then. But I think that's more of a fault on the movie than the fault on the actor, because here I really liked his characterization of this sorcerer who is still working to believe in himself and believe in his potential. I didn't receive it as something just kind of recycled from another character. It really felt like this was Simon or Smith's sorcerer. And I thought that that's credit to his performance. Did you buy into his accent? It was kind of there, kind of not. I mean... It's like people are bringing up Pascal's Texas accent and how it comes and goes, uh, Last of Us. Um, I'll forgive him there. And then we progress through the story. Turns out that we want to have some reconnaissance going on in the kingdom, but they recognize our faces. So who can we enlist up for help? Well, why not Doric, the nearby druid who is formerly romantic with our character Simon? Now, what can a druid do? Doric is straight up a shapeshifter. Shapeshifter into some of these like wildly beasts that are huge, even down to a housefly. And I found it to be so exciting to follow a druid like I hadn't seen before in movies. 
She's like Beast Boy. I was really a fan of Doric as a, as a character here in this troupe. And then, um, through one means or another, we get introduced to our, our paladin, our sank, and that has its own, like, sub story that takes place, like, in one of the actual, I'm just gonna say, like, I'm not gonna say underworld, but maybe under caverns, like Dragon's Cave. Who knows what to really call this space? Um, but that scene actually gave me, gave me intrigue into, how much more we're going to see from Zenk and back to the script. He has his own way of speaking and his delivery is perfect for this type of character they're trying to sell. Yeah. The whole cast just all the way around are really giving a pretty solid effort all the way through it. Again, as we keep bringing up like the core relationship is between Edgin and Holga, Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez, and they have really great back and forth. There's a scene where we go to essentially Holga's old place. And then uh, she and Chris Pine start singing the song. And while they don't have the greatest voices in the world, it's so genuine and lovely. Like, it's this moment of earnestness in the moment of, you know, serious stakes involved that I just thought was really lovely. Um, Justice Smith, I've, you know, as, as I mentioned in my quick hit a couple weeks back, I'm a huge fan of him. You know, his relationship with Sophia Lillis is really dry and interesting. Hugh Grant, as we already mentioned. I want to talk about Daisy Head because you have not watched Shadow and Bone, have you? I haven't. She is so different in Shadow and Bone. She's fairly, you know, charming and quick-witted in that. And here, as you mentioned, she's stoic and dark and completely in her own head. But she's also terrifying. Like, all the stuff with the Red Wizards is, frankly, really unsettling in a way that I only kind of got from my own campaign experience. Like, I know that that's a thing in D&D with, you know, the liches and everything. But she kind of owns it. Like, every second she's asked to break her facade is just unsettling and i really found the goosebumps going up yeah she works from the jump as the bad in this movie and i was and I, there was no hesitation for me to like wait for another big dragon to come in and have that be like the final face-off no the character sofina she is the face-off in this movie and it, it's a wonderful battle that they have slight spoiler there is a final fight in a dungeons and dragons movie oh god that's such a spoiler but I will say, well, I like that fight a lot. And there's one cool shot with all the characters doing a cool thing that I thought was really cool. I will say, as you mentioned, the thing of, oh, now we have to do this thing comes at a point where I thought the emotional arc had really resolved itself. So for the next 20 or so minutes, I thought, OK, I guess we're going back to this. But it, it is cool and it is fun. And I, I have to give credit to, you know, Daly and Goldstein as directors who really just know how to get you back into this thing. They really have a grasp on. And I think it goes to the larger instance of. You know, we might, we keep bringing up Vox Machina, and I'm sure we'll bring it up a couple more times during this review. I love how this movie gets to the heart of the chaos of a campaign, of how, yeah, none of these people should frankly be here, and none of them frankly have the skills to be here, but they're here, and they just have to now, and luck and their skills have to be on their side. And that's really embodied with Justice Smith's character, who is constantly questioning himself and questioning his worth and his whole heritage and everything. And I think that sense of unknown i think really drives the emotional appeal of the movie where you know maybe they're not completely flushed out characters with the most hard-hitting backstories or anything like that but you're gripped to them because the actors are so committed but also because the directors are really guiding you in the direction of as good dm should of the idea of here's where you need to go here's where you need to root for and just you know have a good time with it as I was watching this movie locations really stood out to me so please answer this question am i in hogwarts and the castle Yes. I need to check. I don't think this is, uh, I don't think this is Stuart, the, the guy who did the Harry Potter. I don't think that's him. Um, but I'm sure they took a little bit of inspiration from that. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, there are two distinct scenes that I remember. And one of them is there's, they always show like there's this grand courtyard. It's in Harry Potter and 
there's a surrounding walkway where you see like arches and stone around them. And it's the point where Edgin and Holga are sitting and they're waiting to speak to Forge. And I believe they're just sitting there. And it's this really cool shot of seeing them both on a bench to the left or to the right. And then on the, on the left, you have this far view of like these two characters just walking down the hall. And I think the camera choice, like that shot choice is meant to s- display this beautiful set that they're on or this location where they're shooting. And then the second piece, you might remember in Harry Potter, the first film where they all have their broomsticks and they're learning to fly and like to, and to maneuver their broomsticks. It's that, it's that greenery out there and you see a castle right behind it. And once this film reaches a location that looks just like it, I, I kept on just thinking to myself, Oh yeah, they're straight up like these are locations that were used to film the Harry Potter movies is where my head goes. Have I researched it and confirmed it? No, but I was curious if you had that same kind of reaction. I did look it up. It's uh, Ray Chen, who is actually the production designer on Falcon Winter Soldier, um, but not on the Harry Potter movies. So is that a half no? Sure. <laughs> I'm telling we're going to do a rewatch and maybe we'll see if they send out for sure, for sure. But I got to say, if you watch it and you have similar feelings, you got to let us know because I'm I, there's no way I'm delusional. <laughs> what else did you enjoy, Brandon? Um, It's funny because I enjoy a lot about this movie. But now I'm stuttering to think about what to go to next, because there is a quest. It goes well as far as it can, I suppose. You know, you meet the characters, you have fun with them, and that's kind of it. Um, And there's nothing essentially wrong with that. Like, I watched this movie. I had a really good time with it. I can't wait to see it again. And I would really love to see a sequel, because I think these characters lend themselves to a lot of future storytelling purposes. But I also think that there is a sense of not hollowness, but just something in there to shake things up a little bit more, because... Pretty much right from the 10 minute mark when Hugh Grant's character is reintroduced, you kind of know where the movie is going and you're just in it for the ride. And it is a really fun ride. It was just one of those things where I thought, and? Very fair, Brandon. Very fair. I, I would speak to, you know, those, those action scenes that we get here and there in the beginning only to turn into, it's a heist film. It like, it, it takes a lot of those elements of the planning and like planting a seed only to follow up on it later. And, um, there's an interrogation at the graveyard. Like I actually, really Oh my God, the graveyard scene is so good. Yes. I love, I love the different steps they take in this film to achieve their quests. No two feel the same. And my favorite sequence in particular, uh, is going to be that, that, teleporting picture frame that they use. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, but it's like how they are imagining themselves entering this vault, this Royal vault that exists there. And so there was enough, there was enough different pieces in this movie with each, you know, step to achieve this quest, you know, on the beach, it does slow down, but outside of that location, I was moving with the story and I, and I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, there are these two or three different points where the movie doesn't grind to a halt, but does start to slow a little bit. Um, and in a movie like this, where the pacing is so good, regardless, I did find myself going, okay, let's, you know, get on from the beach. Let's get on from, you know, the, the Holga backstory. Like, let's get a move on with some of these things. But it never took me out of the main story or took me out of the connections I was developing with these characters. Let's go on to ratings. Um, I'm going to start off with this solid 7.5. I don't think I can go really higher or lower than that. I think this is incredibly watchable. I would definitely watch another one that explores these characters. And even though I praise the idea of this world being, you know, archetypes and things that you don't need an encyclopedia to follow, I want them to take this baseline and really go nuts with it. Like 
develop Holga's backstory. You know, what is the stuff with the, you know, the Harper's spy agency that Chris Pine's character is in? Like, let us explore more of those things akin to, again, Vox Machina, because that show is freaking brilliant. But I think, yeah, if you are at all trepidatious about this, you do not need to be a D&D fan by any stretch of the imagination. It is just fun characters who have good backstories and good action and really funny humor and just a good time at the movies. Like, I got to see this at the Dolby at AMC and the sound was great, and it really uh, it really came off the screen, and I just had a good time with it, and I feel like we don't see many of these kinds of movies that are not huge spectacles, but still have just as much really engaging, fast-paced energy to it. So, yeah, I'd say go check this out. There is no better, like, there is no bigger recommendation from myself this time of the year just to go and have fun at the theaters, like Brandon says. Go see this with a group of your friends or some family. Or if you go with yourself, go to a crowded showtime, you know, that, that seven o'clock showtime where you're going to be in a, um, in a hefty theater where you can feel the laughter around you and really share that moment with others. Um, I think that this is a very high rec. So I think I'm going to give this movie like a nine out of 10. Like I said, it exists in that space of fantasy and action and just sheer fun that I found myself enjoying at every corner. While it does have its slows, I never feel that it completely stops. And so that's why I feel um, it has interesting enough characters for me to be invested in the story. Even if it is a surface level investment, I'm not signing on for too much of my heart to be broken with the way this story turns out. But you know, it, it has some, it does have some moments where I go, oh, like, you know, of course they're going to do that thing. But I shed a tear. It was a wonderful watch. And it was cool to see a gelatinous cube actually be as effective as like, I believe it to be in the D&D space. So big wreck for me. This is a nine out of 10. I will also quickly add just one thing I didn't like. Um, Next movie, do everything the same. Just get someone else besides Tim and Paul to do the theme song, please. We're going to go ahead and turn over to your solo review for the movie Air. Brandon, take it away. So Air, Air. I'm going to put the uh, Dom DeLuise soundbite from Spaceballs in there because I think it's funny. I'm breathing. Air. 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 This is Ben Affleck's uh, return to directing. He directs a, and stars actually alongside Matt Damon in this huge ensemble cast. Jason Bateman, Viola Davis, Chris Tucker. Uh, all about the potential signing of Michael Jordan in the 1980s. It is 1984, and the film never lets you forget about it because the opening scene is literally just a montage of things that you may or may not recognize from the 80s as Dire Straits' money for nothing blares in the background, and you're like, yeah, American capitalism, hell yeah. Um, we follow Sonny Vaccaro, who is a real-life marketing executive for Nike. Uh, again, 1984, we follow them in Oregon. Uh, Phil Knight, played by Ben Affleck, is breathing down his neck to figure out what to do with their marketing budget. Sonny has been adamant about signing uh, this hot young rookie named Michael Jordan. Everyone says he's crazy on it. Michael's estate and his mother, played by uh, Viola Davis, say, we don't want to sign with Nike. You know, if you're old news, you're entirely for, like track stars and Olympic athletes and nobody else. Sonny does not take no for an answer and thus begins a long quest to get Jordan to sign with them. You also have Jason Bateman as his second-in-command, Rob Stazer. You have Matthew Maher, actually, from Our Flag Means Death. Uh, he pops up in here as the designer of the original Air Jordan shoe. And then, of course, as I mentioned, uh, Chris Tucker pops up in here as Howard White, an absolutely eccentric marketing guy himself. Uh, Marlon Wayans, Chris Messina, the whole cast is stacked. And again, all led by Ben Affleck's direction. Seven years after Live By Night, which I'll admit, Left a little sour taste in my mouth. This is the same guy who did, you know, The Town and Argo and all these movies that I really like him as director. And I still want to eventually see what his take on Batman would be. But this was not really 
let's just say there was not something I was eager to see. I'm not a sports nerd. I'm not a basketball enthusiast encyclopedia nerd by any stretch of the measure. So this story was pretty alien to me. On top of this, the idea of, you know, it's Matt Damon and Ben Affleck reuniting. Yay. But I also have never loved Goodwill Hunting. Uh, don't tell anyone on that. So there's a lot of things coalescing that I was like, okay, sure, I'll go and see this. But then South by Southwest happens and it gets rapturous appraise. Um, it gets rapturous acclaim. And I was really interested to see what that kind of crowd pleasing effort that I was hearing so much about would be. This is very good. This is a good movie. Um, and I think why it's good is it never loses track of its tone, of its presence, of its ideas. Do they always go deep enough? That's debatable. This is still a movie where it's a bunch of, you know, primarily rich white dudes trying to take control of a young black athlete's career in a time where that was very much valued over anything else. So take that out, take those optics for whatever you want. But that being said, the characters are really interesting. It, it takes a movie that is mostly centered in a couple of boardrooms or like um, Michael Jordan's mom's house or like a couple of exteriors. It's a very, uh, it feels like a very intimate movie, despite the fact that it sprawls various parts of the globe. And I think the reason that it worked for me so was that Ben Affleck really knows how to layer these characters into each part of the story so that they feel as important as the eventual signing of Michael Jordan himself, which I'm sure as some of you have heard, Michael Jordan does not actually appear much in this movie. He appears mostly like from the back or like you hear a voice here and there. But the whole thing is that the story is about the Nike designers and their efforts and what that means for Michael as a player rather than Michael himself. Um, Crucial to that, however, is Viola Davis, who is very good in this as Michael's mother, Dolores. Uh, there's a particular scene between her and Matt Damon. Matt Damon is also terrific in this. I didn't mention that off the top. I think he is really damn eclectic and electric in this and really knows how to gravitate you towards this maverick idea that Sonny has of just never giving up on someone's legacy and idea versus what they can bring to a company. He's very humanistic in a world that does that only wants him to focus on numbers and analytics and all these different things. And there's a scene between Matt Damon and Viola Davis at her house when they're first trying to get that meeting set up between them and Michael that is really quiet. It really tunes down a lot of the energy of the rest of the movie, but I never was bored by it because they just have this great sense of palpable chemistry between the two of like, this is a mother who has seen her son go through so much already at such a young age and this random scout who is saying all the right things but we as an audience know that he believes them, but she has no reason to think that she believes them. So it's kind of this back and forth that the movie kind of entails. And it all leads to this movie where, you know, it's very breezy. The dialogue is really snappy. It is very funny at times when the jokes don't land. And I didn't love every joke that was delivered in the movie. They do feel a little, you know, haha, business bro-y, uh, hit the water cooler, that kind of thing. But I do think it's breezy enough for it to really account for itself and take ownership of its own ideas and its own energy and that energy is really fun like for me again as someone who came into this really not knowing much about the story i was engraved by i was engaged by it i wanted to know well how did they come up with the air jordan design shoe and then they tell you that story and it's really interesting and even with you know when even when ben affleck does that stupid thing of like who's the player zooms in michael jordan or like what's the name of the shoe zooms in let's call it the air jordan like very bro centric kind of thing and I was rolling my eyes a lot during it. And yet by the end of it, I really, I really did grow to its charm. It has a distinct charm to it that I think, especially sports nerds are going to love. But I think general audiences, this is going to sound very facetious to me, in the same way that Top Gun Maverick had that kind of big, bold storytelling, it, but with very simple 
you know, grounded Americana to it, at least of a certain age to it. I think Air has the same way. And I think that's why it's getting so much acclaimed as it does. It is snappy. It is breezy. It's not always deep, but it is fun and it never loses track of what makes it fun. And I was kind of just impressed by how it manages to achieve that. It does bring to mind another another sports feature that we had covered some time ago here on the podcast, uh, and that is hustle. So I wanted to bring yes. a question. I wanted to bring a question and strike it to you. You know, right after this, we are going to be talking. It is a film that really centers itself on the deal makings that went into this specific product. And so air seems very much like that. But we got to remember, we're still in the scope of basketball. and We're still telling a story that maybe it's not outright about Michael Jordan. He has heavy influence in. So looking at a movie like Hustle and its type of focus on the player and, and what it means to like belong to a game and be more than oneself. Where do you see its relation to, you know, pushing the product of the Air Jordans versus telling the story of how that that influence was being built? Well, that is the thing is that Nike endorsed this. So you get like a walk around of like there's a moment where Jason Bateman talks about the shoes being made in Taiwan. And you're like, you wanted to go into that, didn't you? But you can't because it's Nike. Um, <laughs> and the funny thing is that we'll get into it more with Tetris. I think Tetris does some things right that this doesn't and vice versa. Like, I think this has a better tone than Tetris. It continues, like, it's a very just breezy runtime. Like, you never feel lost in it. It goes to great lengths to make everything feel communal and important. And even when it becomes, like, the Michael Jordan idolization aspect of it, it always feels like it's a person, even though you don't see that person, which gets to my murkiness on it. But, like, again, the characters are so effective in communicating that I never really was bothered. Whereas Tetris, we'll get to it. I think there's things in the first half that don't quite click it kind of wobbles and weaves until that second half of the movie. They're very much two halves of the same coin of like, you know, dudes in rooms talking and like business etiquette and that kind of thing. But I think where Air succeeds is in a liveliness to it, in a sense of communal engagement to it that draws you along. And I think I'll stop at this point where there's the thing with Sonny's character that I think is so fascinating about him is that there's a scene between him and Jason Bateman about midway through the movie where Bateman's not like angry at him, but kind of berating him of just like, yeah, we all are part of this team, but we never agreed to this. This is like all your baby. The whole thing is like, he needs all of the budget and he is kind of just driving the entire department with him. And it's this very small, intimate scene in the midst of, you know, ah, calling this, ah, you're, you know, an a-hole and all this stuff. And it's all this stuff, but it's this microcosm scene of Sonny as a character and why he's so relatable because he's not a villain by any means, but two people in that company who aren't just obsessed with numbers, like he's taking their livelihood and shoving it towards the great unknown, which for a company like Nike at the time, which they established was not doing great, it does imply stakes to it. So it constantly brings up this thing that Affleck does with the movie of adding new elements to make the characters more complex, but never less likable. And I kept wanting a reason to dislike it more than I did. So yeah, as far as ratings go, I'm very, again, mixed on it because I said like the Tetris comparison is there and I don't want to go higher or lower necessarily. I'm going to give it an eight right now. I think this is really engaging, really good time. Uh, I'm sure as many of you are listening to this, you're all storming up to go see Mario Bros. right now. But like for certain audiences, this is going to be just as exciting, if not more exciting than Mario. Because again, like Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, who plays a Zen-obsessed, neon-coated filled knight in all the weirdest ways, I think. Um, Jason Bateman is great. Again, like the whole cast is really fire on those cylinders. The script really ne never lets up as to what the movie is going for and what the stakes are. And there are some truly excellent scenes it can veer into, you know, old school, synthetic 80s Americana. It can lead into 
motivational speech territory where you feel like, oh God, I'm rolling my eyes so much at this. And yet by the end of it, I did find myself really gripped by the story and I wanted to see how it would end up. It is in theaters right now. Um, oh God. It is in theaters right now. It's an Amazon movie, but interestingly, it's not going to Amazon at the same time, which is this, it's, uh, it's one of the few times I've ever done this where they haven't done a synchronized release. So just keep your eyes out. I'm sure it'll be on MGM plus or Amazon prime at some point, but if you can see it in the theater this weekend, I think you'll have a really good time with it because I was seeing it in a packed house and everyone was having a hoot about it. So air is not bad. On to our third review for this week, the movie that I've kept bringing up and, uh, have a little bit of trepidation talking about, but, uh, Tetris. This is the story, not of the blocks of Tetris. That would be a very interesting concept and apparently is still floating around somewhere in the halls of Hollywood. Uh, this is about the story of how Tetris rights were acquired and were distributed worldwide from the original Russian designer. Noah has more details on that. Tell us about Mr. Taron Edgerton and his latest project and the falling blocks that, that do the things. Yeah, as addictive as they are, you know, pulling a quote from the movie, he just says it's it's more than a game. Like, it's something that invades your livelihood after the fact. I don't know if I had the same experience after playing Tetris for the first time, but maybe maybe yours is just like the movie. So what goes on in Tetris, as Brandon says, it's a focused, you know, creative look at not the production side of Tetris, but more of the the effort behind marketing and sales all pushed by Edgerton's um, lead in Hank Rogers. He's trying to expand tenfold beyond the Japanese market for PC and console for Tetris. Now, what that lends itself to is a movie that is halfway through uh, about Rogers. I want to say just like as, as this positive main focus of a character who's overly confident. He prides himself, I think, on his negotiables, on his negotiating skills, which he has to pull out time and time again to either get himself into situations or try and maneuver them so that he ends up with the best outcome. Uh, it's reminding me of characters like Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, or, you know, you, you can picture this type of character and, and just place it in in the context of Tetris in the late eighties. Um, I'm also reminded of the social network and what it was like to build that from the ground up. That's the type of genre this exists in. And it's absolutely, and it's not shy about having fun with itself either. It knows that it's kind of a, a nerdy movie for nerds. Like if you want to tune into the nerd, <laughs> I'm gonna stop saying nerd. If you want to tune into like the geek history of Tetris and what those inner conversations were like in Russia and what it was like for this particular character to have threats placed on him just for simply, you know, expressing his interest in acquiring certain rights only to then be responded with, this is you committing an act of trespassing and, um, treason against my country you need to leave before you know certain actions are taken against you that's terrifying and to place that like to have this hanging over a deal between rights when it comes to arcade cabinets and tetris and handhelds and there's a whole scene introducing the game boy this film doesn't have too much in it, but I think it definitely takes a shift in the second half when we end up in Moscow and we stay there for a bulk of our time. We even have a more intimate experience with the original creator or the original programmer in the character of Alexei, who lives in Moscow. And we get to under understand his situation as well, because in Russia, he kind of has no idea of how much impact this game had because of the type of control and the type of just 
access you had to knowledge outside of your country. He was, I'm sure, well unaware of the fact that this game was expanding and becoming a hit, even crossing um, different nations and different methods of playing with the console discussions. So I think I gave you the, I think I gave you the bare bones of what you need to know. Brandon is always going to be supportive in, in, in plugging the holes into this uh, ship that hasn't sunk yet. And um, let's say this movie actually is kind of a globetrotter too. Like I said, we spend time in Moscow. We spend time in Japan. Uh, we go back to the U.S. We've got two amazing international covers adding in on the soundtrack. Yes, I'm talking about the Japanese cover of Holding Out for a Hero. Yes, I'm talking about the Russian cover of Heart of Glass. Both of those right when they come in. I was so happy with it. This movie's totally 8-bit. It's all about using the, the gaming style of that time to to fill out and build this world. And I think that that uses the film medium appropriately. They're not even appropriately, but um, to to a better potential than just what you can capture on screen. No, they're enhancing that story. So I found myself for the most part enjoying this, but uh, over to you, Brandon, uh, what got you really ready for this film, if anything? And how do you like the game Tetris? Uh, I love Tetris. I'm a little sad that we don't have former host Samantha Ngorvai on this because she loves Tetris. Um, and I'm sure she'd have way more to say about just the mechanics of it all. And I will quickly go to your point, which is that visually there is a thing that they do with either turning it into 8-bit graphics or like there's player one, which is Hank and player two, like all these things. And they have like imagery with the Tetris blocks. I thought after a while that would get grading. And it rarely does. Like there are some points where like there's a car chase and then it turns to 8-bit and then it goes back to reality. I thought, okay, that's a bit much. But most of the time, it's just this really nice stylistic choice between like in the same way that like George Lucas would use those old those old school wipes in the original Star Wars trilogy, it's a it's a stylistic choice that I think just makes the movie more interesting and more notable. Should quickly mention, uh, because it's a Taron Egerton movie, Matthew Bond is of course producing this, and I think his hand is all over the more action series bits that you get in the second half. Uh, Toby Jones pops up as well as um, another as a kind of middleman developer who gets caught in the whole rank of it all. I did enjoy this. I did enjoy this movie quite a bit. And I, as I mentioned in the air review, I enjoyed the second half more than I did in the first half because I think what the second half does is really, for as cliche as it sounds, it grips you. It never lets go. And I think that's purely because all the setup we get early on of Soviet Russia at that time in a sense of really slow motion collapse. And there's a lot of scenes and a lot of lines of dialogue where we get the sense of, you know, the movie is trying to play up the idea to one of my negatives, which is that so often in the movie, it was that idea of like Tetris, it's Tetris. And like when it comes out, it will destroy the world or unite the world and become the biggest thing possible, kind of like the Michael Jordan stuff in air. And there was some parts in that first half where I was like with the Game Boy scene where I was like, okay, like this is, you know, retrospective idolization. And, you know, I'm sure there was more to it. But at the same time, they do also take great care to move that around and go, no, 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 it's not tetris it's a thing that american and uk capitalists want to sell to a communist society that has been there for nearly a hundred years what does that do to economic infrastructure to political infrastructure and by the time you get into the nitty-gritty of that it is really compelling to see how that all leads and you know what fears people have like what does gorbachev think like he does pop up this in this as a smaller character and what do people in power versus people who want power think about that and there are things like that that just pop up especially in the second half of the movie where I thought, oh, that's what the, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of setup was on that. I really like where this is going. It does make the first hour a bit more tedious to get through because so much of it is 
well, who has the arcade rights? Well, they do. At least they say they do. But then it moves over to here, and then there's a lot of like legalese around the whole thing, and just trying to get gripped onto Hank as a character in that first half is difficult because, again, the second half is so easy. He's in, you know, a restricted police state. Like, you can root for the guy, and he's clearly one of the only people who, as you mentioned, uh, Alexi, played here by uh, Nikita Efremov, who I believe this is his first English language project, who is so good in this. There is a great dynamic between the two that you care about, and by the time you get into the stuck-in-Moscow slash just-outside-of-Moscow sequences, I found myself really getting invested in it, but also recognizing the flaws in that first half a bit more. Huh. Brandon, it's so funny because I I do not like the second half. It's Really? It's, yeah, no, I, that's why I'm sitting here, like, kind of grinning. This because, is interesting. Yeah, in the first half of the film, or in the first, you know, maybe third or so, when we spend time with this character, Hank, I'm given a character that's very much the salesman and he'll do anything to make that sale and to get what he wants. And he has a beautiful family and he moves to Japan. And it's just telling the story that I think is going to be more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like just him getting the best deal and him trying to end up on top and not really caring for those around him, but not because he's dark, but just because he's focused on the sale that he has to make. And so around the time that we end up in Moscow, we, we're already spending so much of our script and our dialogue mentioning these uh, publishers or just big entities. Like I wrote them down, Elorg, Mirrorsoft, Sega, Bulletproof Software. And so I'm very into this this world where all of these different companies have a hold on this gaming industry, I guess. And so once we end up in Moscow, I wrote a note and it's like, this film takes its time in Russia. We explore the deals forged between Hank and I forget his name, but it's his, it's the guy who's like the head of making those deals at Elorg. I don't know his name. Um. Oh, the, the boss at Elorg. Yes. Uh, Nick, Nikolai Belikov. Yes. I see it here. And so, you know, the threats being raised and then suddenly the KGB enter the picture. And I wrote quickly, this, this becomes a Moscow and US like negotiations deal that isn't no longer about the game of Tetris, but speaks to these larger ideas about what Russia wants to hold onto in its, in its state versus what it's willing to sacrifice for a certain price. Which party is going to end up on top? There is a third party in the mix. It's the billionaire son. Um, Kevin Maxwell, you know, the Maxwells. And I believe that's him at least. And Kevin is the son. Um, oh God. Uh, Robert, Roger. Robert, yes. Robert is the dad. And so then throwing the third party in the mix and having it being a battle between those two, I'm not even touching upon Robert Stein and how he got himself the better of the deal. It was easy to follow those narratives. I felt just like as a casual viewer, but. I'm, I was really tuned into that first half of the story where we were promoting this game and we were excited about what it, what potentially it could bring to its community, both young and old and introduce the Game Boy. What would it look like if everybody walked around with these Game Boys? And then it became, this is a Russia US negotiations deal and it's becoming very zoned in on that. Suddenly, you know, we're having a dinner scene with Rogers and Alexi and there's this fear that comes over Alexi's family because they cannot have foreigners in their home, though Rogers was so persistent and so, uh, just charismatic that Alexi caved and invited him in. And now we're like, we're intended, I think, to feel fear for these characters where I, I guess I just hadn't gone in for that, that sort of setup. And the car chase scene, I did not like the car chase scene. The pixels were cool, you know, but I agree with you. They weren't 
entirely necessary at that point. I more so love the pixelization and that style coming in for location cards and coming in for the players, the introductory things. It does feel, maybe you can agree with me on this. They are different. They're different stories, you know, at that yes, half I- point. And that is, I think, the movie's biggest flaw is that the first is so much, you know, establishment, business, business, business. And the second one is almost a spy espionage movie. And if you can't. Yes, I completely agree. If you can't uh, relate both of them to each other, you're going to feel a really jarring shift once that happens. I want to quickly talk about uh, just Hank and Alexi real quick, because, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, this is Nikita Efronov's, I think, again, first English project. I could be, I could be different. Uh, I could be wrong about this. But what I like about their characters to establish is you mentioned the dinner scene and, you know, the club scene and the stuff where Hank is desperately trying to get on Alexi's wavelength and Alexi just isn't having any of it. And what I love about that is that they firmly establish, you know, there's there's a moment when Hank first comes to Russia and he's like, oh, you know, I've got like some Indonesian and Jewish roots. I was born in Holland. I live in New York. Now I live in Japan. And they very clearly establish like Hank is someone of the world. Like he he is someone looking for communities and human beings and like understands that on a very humanistic level. And Alexi, they establish is like, yeah, this is the house that, you know, my parents grew up in, that my grandparents grew up in, that I'll probably live in and die in. And they're very much completely different characters. And it's not just the thing of like, they're so different. They can't possibly get along. It's more like the idea of that, I found that interesting as a microcosm that John S. Bear, the director, is trying to get across in that thing of these are two societies that could not be more different and that raise their citizens completely, completely different. And I think once you grasp that as the idea of Tetris being the thing that could unite or destroy them and add that to the fact of Alexei, who doesn't even want to be like world famous, he just wants the idea to like put bread on his kid's table and not have them be harassed by KGB agents. Like those are things that anyone would want. And when you get to that idea, it becomes that thing of, wow, you're really interspersing that idea of artistic worth with like where that can lead your lifestyle and where it can lead your legacy. Like Hank isn't looking to be, you know, the god of gaming. This is just another job for him until it isn't. And for Alexi, it becomes a thing of I just want self-worth until it isn't and how their characters both are changed by each other. And you put it that way, Brandon, and suddenly I'm telling myself, okay, I watched a different movie. Not so much like I had a, kind of. not that I had a different experience, but that, you know, applying that lens to it and having that kind of study into what these characters and what the world around them means for them. I like your point on Hank being of the world because this dude's over here in Japan, uh, like you said, was born in Holland. Like I looked at a character like him and I go, and how old is he supposed to be? Because the fact to have traveled and to have that global mindset as opposed to that global perspective, as opposed to, you know, the perspective that most of us have, which is just within our cities or within our home States. Um, less so of like, maybe people have a view of their home country, but I feel like at least for myself, I have that home view of the city of Phoenix and then the state of Arizona. Um, and it, it pushes, I think the idea of thinking bigger than yourself. And ultimately here, Hank proves himself to be more than just this salesman who wants to win. There's moments in the dialogue where he just says, I'm not here to make the best buck for myself. Like I'm broke. I'm just making sure you don't get screwed over by this person who's already done it in the past. He reviews a contract. He pushes it back out and ends up getting a better deal through Belikov because of his, his earnestness. Um, it's, in no way did I dislike this movie, but I did recognize that shift. But you speak to to a bigger point of like how you can take this all in at once and know what you're getting into. And that's where I'll kind of leave it is that the movie goes for a lot of things and some of which I absolutely adore and I think are really interesting to explore, except when it gets out of its hands. And like, 
I don't necessarily know if that's John S. Barrett's fault. I don't know if it's Noah Pink's screenplay. I don't know if it's just the world material is just so convoluted. Because I did look briefly up on like the story of the Sega rights and how that all went down. It is very convoluted. And the fact they were able to condense it as much as they did, I think, is absolutely uh, remarkable. But you're right. It can be very jarring to get around you at points. Noah, do you want to start off? A big thing for me in this film is just seeing the smaller video games. I say small, but they were big for the time. Like games like this and games that are coming from Nintendo. We even have, you know, the very popular, we're going to be talking Mario Bros. very soon. But even then, that being involved with the early production of the Game Boy saying, we're going to load these up with Mario Bros. And to have a character like Rogers, you know, thinking, well, I love that scene where he just asks, how many pixels can it hold? Like, okay, how many batteries does it run off of? Because he believes that it can run Tetris. And it's just so, like, inspiring to see those um, those deals go down. And I'm a big gamer. So like I said, this is a film that if you are a gamer and you appreciate that type of backstory and just tuning in, tapping into that history that exists for these other very popular um franchises and entities like Tetris, then check this movie out. It's more, it's more than that. There's plenty of um ways to look into it. As you've heard myself and Brandon discuss, this is a seven out of 10 for me. Uh, and it's a wreck. It is on Apple TV plus. So whenever you got a minute. And depending on your area, it might be in some theaters because Apple TV just does that thing where they sometimes put in theaters, but they don't tell you. I might go and aid with this again, like similar to Air, where I think there are things that both of them do in terms of the, you know, guys in the 80s who just want to get stuff done and business, business, business. But I think Tetris has it. It falters more than Air. I will say that, you know, it is inconsistent. It does get really wonky at times. The characters like, you know, Hank's wife and, you know, some of the KGB agents aren't given much beyond stereotypes as characters. But when it's on and when it has something to say about artistic worth and greed and, like, the last days of the Cold War and the legacies that we're still feeling from those conflicts and ideological disagreements, it's really fascinating. And again, like, I don't think we've actually said, Taron Egerton is great in this. I'm convinced he can do basically no wrong at this point. Um, I was about to mention it, Brandon, just before we close out, I was going to say, and also shout out to our lead actor, Taron Egerton. Like, I, we, we haven't marked on him because, you know, he's, he makes no errors or like bold decisions here. We didn't bring him up because it's like the teach. It's like a, I don't know what stereotype like does this, but they're like, if I don't bring you up, then that's a good thing because that means you didn't distract me from like the whole experience. It's a thing of like, uh, it goes to the idea of like the best news is no news or that kind of thing. Absolutely. Or, or no news is good news kind of thing. Um, but yeah, Taron Egerton is great. The supporting cast are mostly fun when they're given st- place to shine. I like the second half a lot for how just flat out gripping it becomes. Noah is on the complete opposite side. And I think that goes to the idea of like, you should check this out. Like just watch it at home. Like it's barely under two hours. I think if you're at all interested in just the story of how this cultural touchstone that we think of just in world culture came to be, and it is really fascinating, give it a shot, see what you think. You know, if not, you're not missing too much, but I do think there's stuff in there that is really worth your time. And that's going to wrap our discussion of the movie Tetris. It seems like all the pieces have come together. And the same stands true for our final feature we'll be covering today along with our guest. That is John Wick Chapter 4. I'm tossing now over to Brandon King, who's going to provide you the synopsis and get you all geared up for this final feature in the John Wick franchise. Dot, 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 question mark. Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? Like, you know, we'll talk about the film. We might talk about some of the spoilers, but uh, Chad Stahelski has kind of had the reaction of, eh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, Chad Stahelski is back for John Wick Chapter 4, as is, of course, Keanu Reeves as the titular gunslinging character, uh, has made a 
surprising amount of money so far, uh, has gotten good reviews, but even better than usual, which is a little bit surprising for this franchise. We pick up uh, just a little bit after the events of John Wick Chapter 3, which, again, spoilers if you're not familiar, John Wick is a hitman. The first film he is inspired by, the spoiler of spoilers, uh, his wife's gift of a puppy has been killed. He goes on a killing spree. Lots of things about assassins and the underworld are unraveled. It's a lot. Basically, at the end of 3, he is still on the run. We come into this film. He is as well. He is essentially on the hunt for the Elder of the High Table, which is sort of the Illuminati of the assassin world. That vehemently pisses off the Marquis de Gramont, played here by Bill Skarsgård, immaculately dressed, by the way, which I hope he gets into costumes in this movie. Um, he doesn't take highly to this. And for retaliation, lots of bad things go down, and it essentially inspires John to take up residency at other places around the world, continuing his stuff on the run. Until it all catches back up with him, we encounter Kane, his old friend, uh, his old assassin friend, played by Donnie Yen here. We encounter Mr. Nobody, a sort of independent bounty hunter, played by Shamir Anderson, uh, trying to track him down essentially just for a price. Rina Sawayama makes her film debut in here as Akira, the daughter of John's old-time ally, played by Hiroki Sanada. And the whole thing is this whole coalition of the last couple of films of John Wick. How will John progress in this? Does he even want to progress in this? And can he win his freedom from the uh, archaic rules of the high table? I want to toss it over first and foremost to our guest for this review. He is the host of No Caps Required and a dear friend of mine. Sky Merida is here. Sky, how are you today? I'm great, Brandon. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks, No, for the applause in the background. I don't think there's, I don't know if there's any applause honestly going on right now, but if there is, I'm grateful. Thank you as always. Going into John Wick Chapter 4, Knowing your history with the franchise, we had a whole uh, episode of No Capes talking about John's killing ability and skills, but I want to get your impressions of the films as a whole, what you were going into this, and your initial reaction on the bombast that is Chapter 4. John Wick, I think, has just been a very consistent franchise in terms of just, you know what you're getting yourself into, and at least just speaking from you know my point of view, I always have fun watching the John Wick movies, and I always leave satisfied. Chapter 4 is no exception. This has gotten probably like the best reviews of the franchise to date, which is saying something considering like the massive franchise. I think that John Wick has already become like, you know, one of the biggest action franchises of our generation, I would probably, you know, say. And, um, yeah, it's just crazy that that film back, you know, back in 2014 just spanned so much love. And there were so many people that I think you even mentioned that aren't even movie fans who have just gravitated towards Keanu Reeves in this character. And, you know, Keanu Reeves has been, um, you know, obviously one of the, you know, the biggest movie stars for, you know, certainly like our generation and maybe like, you know, the generation before us. But it's cool that John Wick was sort of a, a return for him because I think there was a, there was a little brief period of time where I think Keanu was out of the game. And what was so funny about the first John Wick trailer, I don't know if you guys remember, but he's basically saying, I'm back. I'm thinking I'm back. And I remember my brother and I joked, it almost sounded like Keanu was actually almost breaking character saying that he's back. And yeah, I mean, I think he's just a very, and I'm sure we're, we're going to talk a lot about the movie, but I'm also interested to see like how much we talk about like Keanu as kind of a movie star, just because I feel like his movie stardom and his career has just been very interesting. 2014 was a time where I didn't really care about Keanu Reeves. I kind of saw him a little bit like, oh, the 47 Ronin roots, the direct-to-DVD roots, like, he had his time. And then all of a sudden, like, a year later, I was talking about, have you seen John Wick? And now we're almost a decade removed from that first movie. And 
I did a guest spot on a best of the decade list and I put the first John Wick on there and I stand by that. That movie is not only terrific, but it's incredibly influential to the point where if you ask, it seems like nine out of 10 action fans today, they will cite the first movie as an inspiration to why they love the genre today. And yeah, just spoilers. I think John Wick chapter four is terrific. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's the best of the franchise because as we might get into, I think the first film has such a stability to it there's such a direct focus to it there's such a great through line emotionally in it that i don't think is quite there in this we'll get to the runtime complaints i sure uh but no i want to toss it over to you and get your thoughts on the franchise going in and what you think john with chapter four does in regards to escalating it my household has always been a keanu reeves fan i have grown up watching and re-watching the Matrix movie as well as Matrix Reloaded. And there are so many fight scenes in those movies that we got from the Wachowski sisters that I have I adore and that I can quote and even like you know, raising a crane kick to my dad, he's going to do it right back to me because that is just uh, such a special moment that I hold from my childhood watching those action movies. And so after the first John Wick came out, I think I kind of slept on it until its sequel was like teased and a trailer was out. And then I told myself, okay, finally, let me go check out this movie. I didn't picture the movie that I was preparing myself to see. Like I thought that this was kind of just, you know, your run of the mill action movie. And I knew that it had to do with a husband or a widow, because I think the ring is like in the first like promotional material for the first John Wick, maybe. And then I learned that it's about his dog. And I'm like, okay, so let me check out this movie. And I appreciate the character of John Wick so much, because although you put the kind of pedestal on him, like he's unkillable, it's amazing to still go into these movies and still like kind of hold your breath when he gets into some of these like very deep fights. Somebody who's unkillable is um the Halloween franchise's uh Michael Myers. But John Wick is not. Like to me, I still get this sense of like I, I believe his fighting. I believe his reasons for fighting, but a big part of why I appreciate his character is because of the rules of the assassins, you know, league that surrounds him, or I don't know what they call their, their world, but I know there's the high table at the top and all of the assassins underneath them. I love, I loved the world building that went into characters like Winston and Sharon, um, even Bowery King, who is like the, um, you know, the homeless King. And just the more and more they expanded in that, the more and more I appreciated this world with the, with the way the plot has progressed. John Wick becoming excommunicado really meant that a lot of that world building was just kind of be kind of shut out of these movies now. Like now we don't get to have that Cole Taylor scene where he gets all of his weapons or I don't know, meeting the other um, distinguished locations where the assassins gather that's still present in chapter four. But as I was like trying to recap myself for the other movies, I just remember early on it was, you know, they were laying the crumbs for what this world had to offer. And I was just giddy with excitement. So now that we're here, I just like Sky, just as you said, Mr. King, walking out this theater, I was just I had a big smile on my face and I was so satisfied with what this character has brought to this franchise and how they've managed to keep him so quiet, but yet so expressive. And like the action is is in, incomparable to other pictures that are out right now. It's such a simple concept, but it works. You know, it's sort of like yeah, you- one of the things that I loved about like the John Wick trailers and why, you know, I was first interested in it, like, you know, obviously it had a big star in Keanu Reeves, but the fact that it was just a guy getting revenge for somebody killing his dog. And it's like, who, like, who wouldn't have that type of feeling of trying to like, yo, cause like everybody loves dogs or almost everybody. And, you know, I myself is one of them. So it's just, you know, a simple concept and it's just cool to see how they've just expanded upon it. And as you said, just kind of built this 
world and lore of John Wick that has just expanded and has just been so fun to watch. And, you know, I mean, obviously I'm talking a lot about the first movie, but I just feel like, you know, as Brandon kind of mentioned, the first movie kind of builds the blocks of like, obviously going now into chapter four. Some people feel like, okay, you have to make every movie like super complex. And granted, I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, it's great you know, when you have great complex movies, but it's just like not every movie has to be super complex. And John Wick has kind of proven that, you know, even the simple stuff can really succeed and really be great. And yet that's kind of the thing is that I'm not opposed to us going back to the original movies because part of what makes Chapter 4 so interesting and I think good in bad ways is how much it chooses to tell you. Because we're four movies in. This is the longest movie in the franchise. It's just under three hours long. And I've heard people both ways of like, it's too expansive. It tries too much and doesn't tell you enough. Or, oh, it tells you just enough and it focuses on all the action. For me... I think there is a little bit of both ways in it. I like the expansiveness we do get to the universe, but there is also a thing of like, okay, four movies in, tell me what the high table is. Like, is the Marquis a member or is he like the adjudicator in the third movie? Like, it, there's a whole thing of like the high table um, establishment that I think is still really underwritten in these, but they make up for that by really just, you know, flashing the pace through you by, you know, surrounding Keanu with these top tier action talent behind them and just really giving you these really great set pieces that, constantly keep at least for myself really invested i love what this movie is going for i just wish it had filled in the kind of like avatar 2 where like i love what it's going for i had a fun time with it but there are holes in it that i can point out i'm gonna remind you guys that willem dafoe was in the first movie i have forgotten at this point At, at at this point it just escaped me because then I love the character that common plays in John Wick chapter two or even Halle Berry's stand out such memorable fight sequence with the two dogs in John Wick chapter three parabellum. Why did they drop the Latin last word for chapter four? Who knows? But in chapter four, I think that 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 spotlight belongs to none other than Donnie Yen as Kane. He is a new character. I thought I had figured him out already when I first saw him. Like, oh, here is the here is the blind assassin who's actually going to be so much more badass than you expect him to. And he's actually like, uh, he has to be submissive to the Marquis because of the potential threat that the Marquis places on his family. I wonder how this is going to play out as Kane and Wick are former uh, colleagues, I would say. And then he ended up actually just exceeding my expectations, whether it be in his particular style that he has or, you know, the gadgetry that this movie equips him with. Um, even in, in the scenes that aren't action based at all, I found myself just focused on Kane because of how complex he seemed when he was on screen. This is a character that is just as confident as Wick, as just as capable. And I, I'm still asking myself questions while watching it, uh, you know, questioning the fate for both of these characters when they're in the same room. And I think that that brings a lot of power to a foe of Wick's throughout these movies. He's faced bad, but what sets Kane apart? And I think that this movie really explores that and makes you believe it. Donnie Yen is like great. I mean, the thing is, I always look forward to like, you know, watching Donnie Yen fight, I think in any movie. I mean, I think he was a standout and I think most people agree he was a standout in Rogue One. Um, yeah, the thing is, the, the, what I love about Donnie Yen, I guess, I, I, are we going into spoilers or are we keeping this spoiler free for now? We will eventually, but I okay, think we're okay. imagine- Yeah, I, I guess I'll save my thoughts on that, but I will, I will just say that the way they introduce Donnie Yen before he fights is like very cool. And I think it's people like out of their seats. Like I remember when, when they do it, uh, when that moment comes, I guess I just like, you know, sat up in my seat just a little bit more as, you know, they introduce it, but I'll, I'll save it for later. And while I will go back to my initial critique of just like, 
if this is John's, you know, second half of the coin, as it were, and they do make that really clear in that amazing church scene. Like, I love the banter between him and John in that moment. There is such a sense of, like, agency and legacy between the characters. I wish there was a bit more explored with that. I wish there were a couple. And the movie is kind of tailor-made so that they're not in many scenes together. But when they are, it's, you know, it's absolutely electric. He owns the physicality as an actor. I've always thought of him in the, in the few things I have seen him in, that he has legitimate dramatic chops. And I love getting him, like, the whole... um the whole poker scene, which I think has a lot of subtlety between him, Shamir Anderson, and Keanu Reeves is kind of going under the radar, but I really like seeing him in that. I just wish we got a bit more of like, this is definitely their history. This is kind of, and that's not me being like, I need everything explained. It's more of just like, you have almost three hours and you could do something with this. But he absolutely rises to the role and I'm really uh, proud to see him this. To Noah's point, I think, you know, you see like there's definitely a hierarchy or not not a hierarchy, but there's definitely like, you know, tiers when it comes to the assassins of the John Wick world. Like, you know, who are like the, the upper tier guys and then the guys that are just kind of like, I mean, I don't want to compare, but they're kind of like the stormtroopers in Star Wars. It's sort of like, you know, they're going to die. Like, you know, you know, that they're not going to kill one of the upper tiers. And we got We get a few like elite tier, you know, assassins in this movie, but I would argue that, like, very much at the top of the class, at least, like, you know, from what we've seen, it seems like Kane and John Wick are kind of just on a tier of their own, whereas sort of, like, everybody else is maybe in the second tier, maybe the third tier, but then you've got those two at the top. I mean, the whole—we'll talk about, you know, I'm sure all the action sequences, but, like, the museum scene alone, come on. Yeah, especially, like, I mean, we'll, and we'll get into this later, but I think I really love, you know, because the first time we actually see—and then I— is this a spoiler to say like when he does first fights? Cause I'll, I'll save sure. it for later. I would say the movie has like, if I had to call it out, maybe two big spoilers. Okay. And they happen in the third act. So if yeah, for sure. up, up okay, to that so, point, I think that that's, that's fine to just kind of lead people into it. Yeah, no, for sure. I was just going to say like, you know, honestly, I mean, there's definitely like, you know, you can pick what your favorite fight scene was and you guys can definitely like, you know, open the floor for that. And maybe we can go into that spoilers, but. It's interesting. I think like my favorite fight scene in the movie is actually the one at, um, in Osaka, you know, yes. when you see Donnie Yen, you know, fights and not just him, but also Akira is going at it. We see, um, I'm blanking on the actor's name, but her father, you know, also going at it. I mean, so it was that was that scene. I mean, first off, I just love the scenery of Japan. It just looks beautiful aesthetically, but, uh, it was just also just the fight scenes in that movie seeing like, like I had mentioned some of the elites going at it and, you know, in such stylish and cool ways and the score, as you said, you know, you know, very underrated. So no, I remember like just, yeah, that, that was probably, even though there's like obviously a, a bunch of action sequences in this three hour movie um, that are great. I feel like the Osaka scene is probably like my favorite. It's my chance to finally point out uh, the cinematographer on this is Dan Lauston, AKA Guillermo del Toro's normal guy. Holy crap. This movie looks so good. Yeah. Oh, for applause, man. Like, take a character like John Wick, who's always dressed in the same sleek black suit. Even it looks like he has a helmet of hair because it just stops right at his collar. <laughs> and it, it, and it gives the cameraman, the film crew, the opportunity to just give life to the scenes around him. And the John Wick films are so bold in their lighting choices. There's nothing but neon when it comes to their environments. And the scene in Osaka, um, I remember him being on the roof and there's like this red neon sign behind him and you see the the blossom tree that's nearby and i took pause and just said 
God damn, I love the camera work behind these films. They do a neat trick later on in an action sequence where he has almost like an incendiary shotgun. And I'm just like, you know, as a fan of like the action video games and even just seeing a badass weapon on screen and John Wick handling it with ease and like, I was ready for the masterclass of how to, you know, use that gun. I'm ready for the masterclass of running out of bullets, throw your gun and just use whatever guns that belong to the people you just killed. It's, it's insane. The action and the way that it's handled here, but um, I don't mean to derail. The cinematography is standout. Yeah. I mean, the only people working as hard as those cinematographers and the people behind the scenes with those camera shots are probably those, uh, those nightclub dancers who basically through the, through this movie and really through this franchise, like they, they show they John Wick is just murdering people and they, they keep on dancing. They're, they're in the zone. Must keep dancing. A lot of these John Wick films actually have like a festival type space. Do they not? I I was about to say, we didn't get one in the third movie and it came back in this. And I know a couple of people were like, we got a nightclub scene again. Nightclub one. There was the, you know, the location where he takes out the sister too. And in three, you're right. I think, no, three, there was one. Remember, it was like, it, it just wasn't, um, it's like people left, but wasn't there like a nightclub where like, you know, Halle Berry was staying? It's like, you know, when John Wick was, you know, initially trying to look for Halle Berry, I think there's like a dance scene, sort of a dance scene like going on there, like at the beginning. It kind of dissipates because then it like, you know, gets to, you know, the big battle, but I feel like there were some people dancing in that too, but yeah. We're going to say yes, yeah, guy, because I'm not going to test my memory. And like, obviously he's, he's promoting the heck out of it. While we're at it, uh, on the discussion of fight sequences, are there any others that stood out to either of you? Oh, we got to bring up the man himself. Um, we know his name. Like professional fighter, he wore a fat suit for the movie, uh, but I didn't oh, find Oh, yeah. Uh, Scott Atkins, who is literally named Gala. Scott Atkins in, in the fat suit. I just, I was blown away. I was like, whoa, he's kicking really high and he's moving really fast. Right. I don't know. Are they speeding up this, this camera work? Like, how's he moving so fast? Speaking of it, like, honestly, I remember watching that and it, it kind of just shows you like the diversity of fighters. Like, okay, it's sort of like you can't underestimate like anybody in this John Wick world because you can go, even if he's fat, he's still going to give you those hands. And it kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you guys ever saw like the Batman on like the kids WB. It just reminded me of Penguin on that show. If you watch the Batman, Penguin was moving. He was jumping, agile, going head, going head to head with Batman and even like giving Batman the business or at least like, you know, contending with him a lot of times. So it just kind of reminded me of that where it's just like in the Batman, it seems like every villain can fight. And in the John Wick universe, it seems like, yeah, everybody can fight. And so, which is make, which is why these movies are so fun because it's sort of like, yeah, he, he can still give you those hands and yeah, he can still box. I can't tell you how many times that I looked at that and I thought, okay, he's, he's out for the count now, only for him to rise back up yeah. and get ready for another blowout with John. These fights, they will go on for 10 minutes and reach a semi ending. And then lo and behold, the next wave of enemies swarms in. And I just think to myself, yo, like he needs a drink of water. Like let's get John Wick. Like let's get him on the side. Let's get it. Let's pat his forehead with the towel. I think my man's bleeding out. <laughs> to be fair in the club scene, there is no lack of water. No lack of water. I, I'm, I'm waiting for one of the dancers to like, look at what's going on around them, but they're all the drugs, the haze. None of them are even phased by the murder, go, the chaos going on around them. 
I feel like there's probably a couple, but then they just look down and then just get back to dancing. They, I guess they get, yeah, who knows how much admission it took for them to like get into the club dancing and they're going to get their money, money's worth. <laughs> Who's like, you know, dying around them, I guess. I paid 50 euros for this club. I'm staying until 4 a.m. if my life depends on it. As the discussion is leading into like, you know, that of the action sequences, I got to say, you know, if I had to look at them for which ones I favored over which ones I didn't, um, there is one that I think went on a little too long and it had me like raise an eyebrow. Like, did we have to bring in the nunchucks? I think that that's something that I wonder if like Keanu said, you know, I, I can use nunchucks. Like I, I really want to use them in this movie because it feels like that scene made it a point to just display how long and how effective a character like John Wick can be with nunchucks. Even after like the 20 minute shootout fight that we had just seen, this was one of those locations where we spent so long in that one room with glass panels that I was like, okay, bring in the next set of masked henchmen who really don't serve a purpose for driving our character forward. Okay. Got it. He's on the floor and he's out of ammo again, bring in the next wave. And and it was, it was a lot of the same uh, choreography in that scene that had me thinking, okay, you know, I actually was ready for this to move forward. Did you find yourself at a point like that in this movie? At some point you feel like, okay, maybe this is going on like, you know, a little bit, but I don't know. I think it's just like I was just constantly like entertained. I wasn't bored, I guess, in these movies. And because the action was like, you know, pretty cool. I mean, I guess, you know, I just want to really quickly mention the two action sequences that I think of, you know, not going into spoilers, but uh, the shotgun scene with John Wick, really cool in the third act. And then, um, like I said, the Donnie Yen scene, I just think that the way that Donnie Yen introduced, and maybe this is a minor spoiler, so like, you know, proceed with caution, but. You're good, you're good. It's, it's basically very early in the movie when we first see him. It's just, it's basically Donnie Yen, it's basically Kane just eating like, you know, next soup or, you know, eating ramen, and he's just chilling while everybody's dying in the back, and then you see Chidi basically like, hey, do your job, and then he just calmly puts down the bowl, and you just know, like, everything's, you know, <laughs> He goes to, he's going to go to work and he did go to work and it was just so cool seeing Donnie Yen fight just like, I mean, like basically everything that we said about Donnie Yen beforehand, you just see his, um, you know, bat, he puts on a master class in terms of his physicality, his skill, his movements are just like so mesmerizing. So I feel like those, you know, I just wanted to shout out those two fight scenes and even like, you know, an underrated one was like Akira taking on like, you know, the two, like, you know, he's basically has to take on Two guys basically much bigger than her, at least one guy, where basically she just keeps stabbing and stabbing him away, and he finally goes down. So just wanted to you know, shout out those action sequences, just because there's a lot of them, obviously, in this three-hour movie. But, yeah, go ahead, The Brandon. Stairs. The Stairs is another one that yeah. I'm going to throw out. Brandon, back to you, but I wanted to just sprinkle that in. We're, we're, just, we're just thinking about all these action sequences, because yeah. there were a lot of them. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, the movie's almost three hours. It kind of has nothing better to do. But yeah, the the whole stairs sequence is ridiculous and just gets even more ridiculous to the point where there is a thing that switches up in the sequence where a certain character comes into fray where I went, oh, you just need more for this. Okay, because it's just so well choreographed and so well shot that you're just at that point. Fine, you've earned it. I want to quickly talk about the Hiroyuki Sanada Donnie Yen fight at the Osaka sequence, which that whole sequence is like 20 minutes long in the final fight where the music literally cuts out and it turns into like a five minute long samurai short film and it's brilliant and it's so poignant. And I think both Sanada and Yen are doing great work, but I have to talk about Rina Sawayama. Rina Sawayama, this is her first movie. I love her music, by the way, so I'm a bit biased. She's so good in this. 
Like, I'm sorry. Why are we getting a ballerina spinoff of Ana de Armas? I'm sure it'll be great, but we need her spinoff. She is such an interesting character. She comes up with the physicality. You mentioned the, the stuff with the guy crawling up the stairs, which is great, but there's all of her other physicality work. There's her, her introduction scene, which is great. Like she's going up against Hiroyuki Sanada, who is a fantastic performer and they are completely just on the same wavelength. And I was just so enamored by their relationship. And so when let's just say, things change in that relationship i found myself really compelled by her as a character and she just she's not in it that much but she is the one thing where i was like i want more of her she's so cool you know they set something up why didn't they show that again i think it just goes to the point of this is a movie that is trying a lot of things and at its core i think we'll get to that idea but i think that idea does work but it's throwing in like 12 13 14 other (laughs) ideas one of the uh, that is one among them and i think it's just that a thing of well, it's neat, and sometimes in action movies of the past, you didn't really get every answer, so we're just going to give you all the style and just enough of the emotion to get you attached. And yeah, kudos, it works. I think that it's just necessary to show fans, like, don't forget, like, this is still a thing that's that happens in their world. Like, this is still something that goes on. But I, I honestly doubt they'll explore something with, with that relationship. I think they were ready to see... Well, I have doubts because when we get to the the fate of our leads, it it raises the question of, okay, what your past comes back to haunt you, right? And I think that that's what Akira's character serves to for one of our leads. And that's why they include it at the very end. I don't know. Yeah, wanted- we can definitely talk about it more in the spoiler section. But, uh, yeah. I was going to I was gonna say, I want to open it up to John's journey as a whole, which by proxy introduces, I think, the two or three major spoiler things. So, again, if you somehow have not seen this or you care, just we'll put a time code in. We'll deal with that. But yes, Sky, over to you. So now we are going full on spoilers. Yes. Okay. I can't believe he died, man. <laughs> that was, that's just kind of my first. Yeah. Just because, I mean, like Noah has said throughout these, like the concept of John Wick has always been that he's just been this unkillable. The Baba Yaga. He's been the, yeah, the Baba Yaga for all these movies. And he's just like, no matter how many armies or swarms of people have come after him, He's always taken all of them out. He's always been like, you know, the top dog and he has just survived everything imaginable. And so honestly, when he, you know, collapses and then you see the shot of his like gravestone and the, like, you know, the end of the movie, I still honestly was like waiting for like, okay, I'm not sure he's actually dead. Like I actually, yeah, I'm not, I was basically like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about this. That's why I honestly thought like when I waited for like the end credits, I was thinking that, okay, maybe he's not actually dead. We're going to see him. And it said it, you know, points back to Akira and, you know, uh, Kane. And, you know, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But in some ways, it's like an interesting, it's an interesting way for him to go out. Because on one hand, it's sort of like, okay, he's been fighting so hard and so long to, you know, take down like, you know, the high table and just like, and then he finally does it. He finally is able to like, you know, win the day and, you know, yeah, uh, shoot Bill Scars are his character and be able to, you know, reinstate, get the Continental reinstated. And it seems like this happy ending. He does everything and then he, he just dies. But on one hand, you could say like, okay, well, why did that happen? But on the other hand, you could say that he was at peace. You know, he was finally at peace after going through all this. I think, you know, you see like he's basically looking at his, you know, wife at the end and he's basically just able to finally 
almost accept death. It's almost like John Wick has been a character that has been like fighting death for so long and has just refused to die. And maybe like in that, in those last moments, he was finally accepting of it. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I just thought it was like, you know, that was just my first reaction is like, wow, they actually did it. Just for a moment, I wanted to look, recognize a Shimazu's death. And so that's Sonata's character. His death comes at a mark, comes at a point where Kane really Kane already displayed in, yeah, like you both mentioned, in, in a duel that is just memorable above all else from this film between those two characters. Shim- Shimazu actually already loses the duel without taking any fatal blows. Kane just kind of displays his overpowering of a fighter like Shimazu. And I can't remember if he's injured at this point and that's why he's kind of underperforming or if Kane is that level of, you know, assassin against him. And so then we have Kane looking Akira in the eyes and just letting her know, you know, at first he does warn her against grabbing the sword because this isn't her time to die. She can actually like she can go and live a life. But he lets her know he knows for a fact that that vengeance is still going to be ignited within her. So he tells her, I'll be waiting for you. And you dare give me that line and and you don't show her until after the credits roll? Maybe you two can speak to that after credit scene and, and what it how it made you feel. Honestly, I wasn't disappointed by that just because I feel like we did see I feel like they did a good job of just setting up Akira as a cool and interesting character. We do get that train scene where like, you know, basically she meets John Wick on the train as they're escaping and she's kind of pissed at John and you know, just like all right, if you don't kill him, I will. And I feel like it just kind of leaves like the door open. And then pretty much she's gone for the rest of the movie until that end credit scene where it seems like obviously they're setting up something for the, you know, the, the franchise as this franchise goes forward. And that's going to be like the main, you know, that's going to be obviously like the big intrigue about how this franchise moves forward without, you know, its title character. But as we've said throughout this um you know, whole, uh, whole discussion is that they've introduced a uh, quite a few interesting characters. I mean, you know, so we're going to see, it seems like we're going to see more Akira. We're going to see more Kane and both, I think had, you know, great introductions in this movie. And I'm interested to see what their dynamic is going forward as well as, you know, some of the other characters. Like I also have a theory about Mr. Nobody that's, I don't know if you want me to save until later or you want me to just like ask. Go now. Him. Okay. Do you think Mr. Nobody is at all related to Halle Berry's character? Because if you think about it, they both have dogs that are attacking people, and it almost feels like the same breed of dog. It's well, they, I don't I don't think it's the same breed, but it's it's a similar. Be, I guess it's a yeah, similar breed though, right? Like it's it, an it's an interesting retcon, and it's an interesting way to potentially bring back Halle Berry into the franchise. Because I'm just, because I'm thinking like those are the only two characters that we've seen so far that have dogs that also fight in combat. So, and, and I mean, obviously that's another thing that I've loved about the John Wick franchise is that they just like these assassins just love and I mean, love their dogs. And it's actually like really cool. And that was just honestly when I saw Mr. Nobody and the dog fighting, I was just immediately reminded of Halle Berry's character. So. That's my theory out there. I'm I'm just like throwing it out there. I feel like they're related, but who knows? I could be totally wrong. I saw it more of a, you know, once the dog started to become more involved, I go, this was just used in the last movie. Like, did they love it so much? They just had to bring us a character who still had it, you know? 
and, and I mean, obviously, that's another thing that I've loved about the John Wick franchise is that they just like these assassins just love and I mean, love their dogs. And it's actually like really cool. And yeah, I thought that that was just honestly, when I saw Mr. Nobody and the dog fighting, I was just immediately reminded of Halle Berry's character. So that's my theory out there. I'm I'm just like throwing it out there. I feel like they're related, but who knows? I could be totally wrong. And Sky, I like that your head went straight to a connective thread between these two characters, where I saw it more of a, you know, once the dog started to become more involved, I, I go, this was just used in the last movie. Like, did they love it so much they just had to bring us a character who still had it, you know, because we have one robot arm character here. Do we need another character with a robot arm? It just, it didn't cause that same kind of excitement for me. I understood it. It got a lot of laughs out of the audiences when I was watching this in theaters, but the character of, uh, I see here as Tracker, but we've been calling Mr. Nobody, his role is really to just heighten the the bounty of who, whatever target is being um, focused on by the high table or by the assassin community at large. And I love that. I love that kind of like high stakes um, bidder who is not really in it for themselves until it's the maxed, until it's the maxed out payout. And I thought that we were going to see more of him trying to rack it up, but I do enjoy his place in the story. And I like his communications with the marquee. That being said, I'll follow you on that dog theory for now. But personally, I was, I was kind of like, I, I wish they kept that in the third. That's, that's my take. Brandon. I kind of agree. I almost wish they would have just made this Sophia like, oh, yeah, after the events of the third film, she became a bounty hunter. Like, you could make that a thing. Um, I also just love how they make Mr. Nobody very fallible as a character. Like, there's the moment where Skarsgård stabs him in the hand and he viscerally reacts like, oh, he's not just, you know, a stern assassin type. Like, no, he's a weird, quirky human who just kind of comes and goes and kind of embodies, like, the other side of the Baba Yaga persona. Um, I want to just really quickly go to... John's death, but also there's so much to talk about. Um, yeah. Aaron's death, which we didn't mention. Uh, this is one of Lance Reddick's final movies. He does very well in this and gets really important to the story. And Sharon as a character never loses his significance to the people who matter to him. And I think that's a big thread for John going forward. Because one of the things that I kind of wrestle with with chapter four is, couldn't we have just done this in three? Because three's whole thing is that he's on the run. It's a chase movie for like an hour and a half. And then he gets to the elder and then it's, well, what do you want to do with your life? And he's like, I don't really know. And I feel like you're kind of getting the same beats in this, albeit with more stylistic flourish and more world building to it. But I also think that's kind of the point. I think chapter four works as well as it does because it gives John the biggest, boldest epilogue that a character like him could. Like, no, it's not, you know, oh, you know, Adrian Padalecki's back and, you know, like all these supporting characters. But it is the thing of like the world is crashing in on him and even he, as we have mentioned, as you two have mentioned so brilliantly, is still mortal. Like he can only take so much. And that mortality is intrinsically tied to his relationship with his former wife. And I think when we get to that dual sequence for as over the top as it can be with like the pinnacle of sunlight and like the music swelling and, and for all those things, I think that scene works so well because it's the ending that John, the reputation deserves which is why I don't think there's a hundred percent chance that he's dead, but that's a whole another thing. Cause again, we don't, we see the body, but we don't see the life leave his eyes. Ha ha ha. Um, but I think it works perfectly for him as a character in this sense of the word. Even if I still have the thing in the back of my mind of could three and four, especially cause they have the same screenwriter, could they have just been one thing, but I'm still happy with how it turned out. His uh, role is very pivotal to the, to kind of the, the emotion of the story, especially with uh, Winston. And when he is in the movie, he absolutely shines. Yeah. Um, real quickly before we get into ratings. 
Again, as we said, John Wick Chapter 5 might be a thing. Very quickly, Noah, to you, what would you want to see explored in a fifth movie? One of two options. One, John Wick actually has his hand raised out of the grave, Evil Dead style. And you want that? Gonna okay. take, it is going to take the alliances of Akira, of Tracker, of you name it, the one-offs that we've seen in the past. Bring back Ruby Rose from the sequel. Bring back <laughs> Common. Let me get Halle Berry. And what the hell? Sprinkle in Ballerina. Give me Ana de Armas. She could be the one that follows through and actually is the one to take out the John Wick, thus absorbing her Rambo assassin soul. And then she goes on to Ballerina. This is exactly the movie people are waiting for, is option one. Option two, you do John Wick 5 as sort of, sort of like a legacy film and it's going to take a lot of the same details from that first idea. Take all those characters and bring them back in, have them circle around each other um, and really try and let's say, take out the high table once and for all. But that's assuming the writers know what to do with the high table, which I still feel that they don't even in this film where we're talking about it, the high tables, characterized by all of their resources being funneled into one of their assets, which is the marquee. So who knows if we'll ever actually see that entity, but those are my two big ideas for where to take this franchise. It's what the people want. I think the most obvious point for me, I think, and they tease it at their, at the end of the movie in the post credit scene is that they're going to continue that dynamic between, um, you know, Kane and Akira and basically have Kane try to live out his life with his daughter. And then Akira, you know, wanting revenge for her father's death. However, there's going to be something that has to unite the two of them. And then they're also going to have to like have a coming to terms about, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the death of that. And, you know, as a, you know, revenge kind of movies sometimes do or revenge plot lines sometimes do. And I feel like that's probably going to be like, if I had to bet, I feel like that's going to be like the main focus of the next John Wick movie. Um, I don't, I feel, I also feel like Mr. Nobody could be just cause they introduced him here. It seemed like that's, that's the thing about this movie. It seemed like they were introducing like a lot of characters that they want to use in their franchise going forward. And, um, yeah, I mean, Akira and, you know, Kane are probably at the top of the list, but I wouldn't be surprised, especially if my connected theory thread is through, if is true, then they probably would. And then I'm very curious to see what a ballerina, you know, which is coming out next year, like what that movie is going to entail. Um, I know that Brandon was like a little meh on it, but honestly, I'm a little, I'm actually a little excited just because I remember like Anna de Armas was for me, one of the standouts of No Time to Die. So we saw like what she can do in an action role like that. And this is basically almost us getting, uh, I mean, obviously the characters are going to be very different, but I feel like, you know, another, you know, the movie of Anna de Armas starring in this like really cool action stylized movie, like a No Time to Die and except it's going to be in the John Wick universe. So uh, I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see what they'll do with this John Wick franchise. I feel like there's, in some ways, you're, there's some, there's some questions to answer, I guess, now with, you know, without your main star, unless Brandon is right and he's still alive. But I feel like they've at least set some stuff up where, like, you know, they, you know, they have some options to go with. For the record, I'm only not ecstatic about Ballerina because it's Len Wiseman directing. I don't care about Len Wiseman. I think they could have gone better. Uh, as far as John Wick Chapter 5 goes, I don't want the supernatural route. I'm sorry, Noah. I think that'd be cool, but I just don't want it. Um, I would either want it to be revealed that John was not actually dead or take place in the period between 3 and 4 because we don't know how much time has precisely elapsed. And I would like to see more of John on the run dealing with high table nonsense and that kind of thing. But you're right. Eventually, I do want to see, you know, the assassin world, the continental world rise up against the high table. I think that's what we 
are hopefully leading to, but who knows? Uh, we've gone way over time with this. Let's get to ratings very quickly. Noah, over to you. Your thoughts on John Wick Chapter 4. In other movies, you know, you have long dialogue sequences, and that's when you immediately go to the restroom and come back. In this three-hour film, I promise you, if you leave to the restroom during that first uh, uh, Osaka fight scene, just go when there's a lot of glass panels, okay? Go then, but make sure you make it back because you don't want to miss the ending to that scene. Why I have to make a point on Bladder, who knows? But this is a big oh nine point. Four? Yeah, let's go let's go right there. It's a little less than nine point five, you know what I mean. Um I love John Wick. I love this franchise. I love what they've what they've achieved in four films, although they maybe they could have done in three, but I'm happy. I'm happy that now we've arrived at the fourth one and the stakes are still just as high. Uh we're not spending too much time diving into these extensive uh you know, positions in the world like the adjudicator, like maybe some other members of the franchise that I just thought like, where is this is all about simplicity and action. Let's go for it. And four actually went there. Beautiful locations, great use of their environments for Keanu Reeves. Next entry in this franchise. It is just like they say the best one so far. At least when it comes to mass appeal. You ask me, I love the second one so much, but that's for me. Uh, high nines, 9.4. Sky. First off, it's actually um, I, it's because Brandon actually mentioned at the top we actually didn't spend too much time on like uh, Bill Skarsgård's character, but I do agree with no, Brandon's point, which is that he's one of the most stylish villains maybe ever. Like you know, is it you know whoever it was you know it was his tailor like he was always uh you know he was killing it on and off the court, man, uh, literally. But yeah, I mean now you know John Rick gradings. Uh, I'm going to try to grade as a school teacher would. And so, like, I'm going to go with letter grades instead. I'm going to go with, like, an A or A minus or, like, you know, somewhere in between there or just, like, yeah, an A, you know, just because, like I said before, John Wick, I think, has never disappointed me in terms of just, like, I know what I'm getting into. I know I'm going to have fun, and I always just leave satisfied. And so this was no different. Um, It's stylish. It's cool. It's action-packed. And yes, I mean, maybe as Brandon and Noah said, like, does it need to go too long? But sort of just like our discussion today, we went long, but it was still worth it in the end. It was still fun. I mentioned Avatar 2 earlier, and I kind of stand by the comparison of like, stylistically, it's great. Character-wise, I found a lot to enjoy. And as a progression of that world, I think I did. I think I'd give John Wick Chapter 4 a bit more of an edge on that because, you know, I like Avatar 2 a lot. It doesn't have, you know, an intrinsic web of assassins that I, as a, as a lore nerd can decompose, uh, can compress all of this, you know, all of that stuff is there. And I really love it. The style is obviously there. Dan Lawson shoots the hell out of this movie. The performances are really good. I know that, you know, Keanu Reeves is Keanu Reeves, but the thing is he's doing a lot with this. I didn't even mention there is a scene that got a little bit of tear out of me at one point or another. I'll tell you guys off camera, but you know, he's doing a lot with this. I think he's doing the most depth to this character since the first one. I think the supporting cast is maybe the most entertaining since the first one. Again, the sequels have done what they've done, but there are things that I would have liked to have seen fleshed out a bit more given the runtime. That being said, when the action sequences are this intense and varied and just overall spectacular, it's absolutely worth seeing in the biggest, boldest theater you can. I'm really weighing between an 8.5 and a 9. I'm gonna say 8.5 for right now, just to be conservative about the whole thing. Uh, it is still in theaters right now. It will probably be on Peacock very soon, uh, because the Continental series is gonna be on there soon, and they'd be idiots not put the John Wick films on there. But yes, if you have somehow been through our half an hour plus review of this and not seen it, go see it in theaters right now. 
And that'll do it for episode 47 of the Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning into this very elongated episode. I hope you tune in for all of it or breaking it into multiple listens. But if you are listening to it in full blast, thank you so much as always. While you're here, uh, Twitter, Instagram at Plot Devices Pod, uh, TikTok at Plot Devices Podcast. More content coming up there soon. Search for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our RSS feed at Plot Devices. Just search for our name there. You can follow us and leave a review. It does actually help pass us on the algorithms and pass us on to more audiences and you know, hopefully expands the team and the audience that we want to surround ourselves with and you guys as well. I want to thank our special guest for today, Sky Merida. Thank you so much for coming on basically last minute. I really appreciate you on this. Uh, where can the people find you online? What do you got going on in your life? And uh, if you're enjoying anything that people should know about, let them know. Thanks for having me on. Always glad to be on Plot Devices. If you want to follow me, you can follow me at Plot at Sky 11 on Twitter and at Sky Merida on Instagram. And if you want to follow our show, No Capes Required, feel free to do that if, by following us at Zero Capes Required on Twitter and at No Capes Required on Instagram. We've got some uh, interesting episodes coming up. I think the next one, as we're recording this, it might all, I mean, I don't know when this one's coming out, but uh, we're probably going to be doing a video game draft. Uh, so, yeah, check that out. Noah Guzman, uh, how are you doing today? Uh, where can people find you online, and uh, what are you enjoying right now? Follow me on TikTok at Noah. I'm him. I need to get more content out there. Um, you'll catch me checking out what in the next week? Super Mario Bros, which we will definitely be talking about on our next episode. So, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music. Uh, lead single Wish is out right now on all audio platforms. More stuff coming uh, very soon. All of those descriptions and information will be in the description as well. Go check that out there if you're curious. So for myself, from Sky Merida, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices, episode 47, and we'll see you at the high table. Knife sound. Knife sound.